You're listening to an OTB AM podcast. You can watch the show or listen live every weekday morning from 7.45 AM. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream for more stuff just like this. And a very good morning to you. It's Wednesday, the hump day of this week. Here we all are, hurtling our merry way towards death one day at a time. Owen, how are you? Good morning to you. <laughs> very well. Uh, death gets another day closer. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the weekend too. So which, which comes first? Who knows? Let's roll that roulette wheel and see what happens. Yeah, I sure hope death comes first. You were uh, confessing to me there in the, the little bit just before we come on air, that, that moment of, uh, you know, intense contemplation that we all have just before the red light comes on, that actually... You were in All-Ireland Final when you were six years of, uh, of age. And yesterday you wondered, was I an entitled prick? That yeah, I'm ashamed to say it. Um, naturally, we had the clerk on the show yesterday who made a, a very valid point that eight-year-olds shouldn't have no business being at an All-Ireland Final. He did clarify that they shouldn't take a, a, a children's, or that a, ch- a child shouldn't take a, an adult's ticket or when it comes to pricing, there, there was a, an, an explanation. But I am ashamed to say that as a six-year-old I was at an All-Ireland Final. So... Yes, confession's out of the way early here, Ger. Um, I, was, I was seven. I was, my first All-Ireland final was Thurless for the 1984 um, All-Ireland Hurling final, the centenary final. And I've got really vivid memories from the whole thing. How like, does it feel to be an entitled kid? Uh, I mean... You, uh, you stole an adult's ticket. Pretty special. Like, uh, Cork were ending uh, a famine of, I don't know how long it was, was it 79 was the previous, or 70, sometime like 78, 79. Some, some incredible famine that Cork were in, like, seven or eight years, whatever it was, that age. And uh, I distinctly remember a guy completely bullet and drunk climbing the, the fence. And I was like, wow. And in my mind, it was barbed wire, but clearly it wasn't. So there obviously wasn't barbed wire in the pitch. Was there? Would there have been? Is there a possibility that it was actually barbed wire? Yeah, potentially. But anyway, the, you know the way those, those, the wire used to be like wire, 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 the concrete pillars. Yeah. And then they would kind of tilt backwards so yes. that you couldn't climb them. Yeah. Wow. Drunk Cork fan was not getting stopped by any engineering feats or gravity or your bullshit, he was getting on that field because they had they'd hammered off you so they knew they were going to win for about 20 minutes to go. So he went right over the top. Yeah, I was like, wow, look at that, that's amazing, look at that guy, <laughs> mom, look at that guy. It's like, yeah. But they were like too busy watching the game. I wonder where he is now. Probably complaining about uh, six-year-olds getting into All-Ireland Finals. Yeah, all right, who knows. Um, but it was amazing. So that, that's my, you, what, which All-Ireland Final were you at? The replay in 2000. Got hammered. No, we did not. You hammered, Please. You hammered me. N- name an All-Ireland, oh, we yeah, have okay, got hammered in. Go away, uh, hammered you. That was the semi-final. That was Meath. Meath hammered you in the semi-final, you hammered Galway in the replay. In 2000. Yeah, okay, okay, sorry. Yeah, so that, that was my first All-Ireland final. But when I was eight, 2002, when we lost Arma, I knew my place as an eight-year-old in the world. And I said, listen, Dad, I'm not going with you. There is somebody, there is an adult who deserves that ticket. I'm eight. I've got no business at an All-Ireland final. You go without me. I'm going to stay and watch the game on television. Yeah. So that, that was my decision. But as a six-year-old, it was fine. Yeah, and I'd say it's one of the best things your dad feels he ever did, bringing you to that game. Oh, massively, yeah. It, it was, I, I would imagine so. And also kind of all the, the, the is, is there a real difference between that and all the celebrations that come after it? And I, like the, uh, there's tons of pictures of me as a, as a six-year-old with the Kerry team and they're in Carasavine and stuff after winning that All-Ireland. Like, is that really different actually being at the game? Uh, like, I'm not sure. Are, are, are all the people of all ages welcome to the homecoming, but not to... The All Ireland final is the question. Uh, uh, look, I don't know. I mean, I think that uh, it's great that you get to go to games, and if you can get to go to games now, I would have been carried over at seven. I'm pretty sure they weren't paying tickets for me. That's all stopped. You can't carry anybody into grounds anymore. 
you need a, a ticket for health and safety. Yeah, that, that's that, that's really killed it, hasn't it? Uh, the all ninety euro tickets. Like it is. It, I wonder is it actually going to change? Uh, kind of on a serious point, the age profile of all Ireland finals. If people will genuinely start thinking to themselves, uh, "This is ninety quid." Yeah, come on. I'm not. Wh- which of my which of my children am I going to bring? I mean, like, how do you how do you like you know you can pick, but the the bill in future for the therapy that your children will inflict on you will be high. Yeah, tr- sure Literally will. And metaphorically. Uh, like uh, I guess that would have been the same when it was eighty quid, though. I suppose last year. Yeah, uh, of course. Let's move on because uh, we want to talk about this a little later on. Brian O'Driscoll is uh, going to talk to us about the depth chart in the centre. It's our latest episode in the Irish Rugby Depth Chart ahead of the Six Nations. We're nearly finished. We've got the uh, back three to come. Tommy Bowles is going to be doing that for us. We're going to focus on the centres with Brian after eight o'clock. But here he is talking about how we match up against some of our rivals. I, I was. I did an interview fifteen minutes ago, and I was asked. What England player would I want, you know, if I could pick one, who would I want to bring across? Yeah. And I went through the whole thing. <laughs> and then the journalist said, so that's none. <laughs> and I, I then backtracked because I didn't want them to say none in his article. So I said, oh, I'm a fit Manu too laggy, but I don't think Manu would want to. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't think you're dropping either of our, our guys. Um, so Is it a poll again in our team? Um, or was it only the yeah, I think Billy does. Yeah, I think that that's maybe I should ring him back up and say, Billy, <laughs> too late. Wow, no England players in the Ireland team. It's uh, he's dead right. He's absolutely bang on. They can make up the bench. I've changed my mind. Let's just crush them. Let's just wipe them out. Let's just erase them. Why? Why don't the Lions committee just ring up Joe Schmidt now and say, "Listen, Joe, uh, we not only want you to be the head coach of the next Lions tour, we want it to be an all Irish team." because you are better than everybody else in the rest of this committee, and we're resigning en masse. Is there any chance you can just appoint all Irish people to the committee? Why don't the Irish just take over the Lions? They'll do a far better job. The Lions team right now would be interesting. There's probably probably a winger and a fullback. Is there somebody just ahead of Earls? Somebody just ahead of Kearney? Is there anywhere else that somebody's getting in? Well, the, the statement is that Billy Vunapola, with everybody at their peak, he's probably the best number eight. Billy turned down the opportunity to go on the last line story, you know? He's going to get that phone call and go, you know what, I'm actually, uh, sorry, this is going through a tunnel. Mm. Like, I'm, I'm not even sure that, like right now, that you can definitely say that Billy Vunapola is better than CJ Sander. I, like, when I make that point, I mean everybody at the peak of what we've seen them do. Can Billy Vunapola get to a level where he's above the consistency of CJ Sander once again? I think, he, I think the height he reached was probably better than uh, CJ at his peak so far. But I think if you look into the year 2019 and you look into the next couple of years, see, there's, yeah. there, there is definitely a debate to be had there. It's definitely not science to deliver that Vunapola is the best date around. No, but uh, it might be no harm for us to like, just inject a little bit of... Uh Nobody believes in us into this Irish team at some point because not everybody believes in them. It's really hard. It's like, oh, we're just gonna, all we have to do is show up into this massive fight. Do you know what? I like we can go and say to Maro Atoje, you've done very well, Maro, over the last couple of years. Uh, everybody's injured. You can take Quinn Roo's place on the bench of the Lions team, and uh, yourself and Billy can come along uh, for the next Lions tour. And everybody from Scotland and Wales can just, you know, knock come. It's gonna be a good second row when uh, James Ryan plus Maro Atoje does actually pack down for the Lions. That's gonna be pretty good. Yeah, it, it's terrifyingly good. Uh, the, it's a real pity the, we're not playing the All Blacks again, though, because like, 
But like Chisana Toje and, J- and James Ryan, we, we heard, all heard the stories from New Zealand of Mario Toje being so obsessed with uh, the Irish uh, freedom fight. Uh, and James Ryan, of course, do you not remember this? No. He was fascinated with uh, Irish history. Right. Wasn't it history he was studying in university at the time? And he was constant. I think Ty Furlong was saying he was constantly quizzing the Irish lads uh, about Irish history, republicanism, war of independence, all that sort of stuff. And of course, James Ryan's great-great-grandfather... Fa- Fought in the Rising. Oh. Uh, yeah, do you, like that was uh, one of the interviews uh, he did last year um, with, with the print journalists. And I think he mentioned it in the interview with Joe as well that he did uh, on the evening show a couple of months back as well. So there's a nice little conversation to be had there between the two second rows and the Lions team. They're going to have the... That's the bromance already locked in for Living With Lions. The, the highest brow bromance ever. It's it's not all uh, stupid jokes. It's actually the most uh, educated second row and probably the best second row in the history of the Lions. Yeah, wow. Okay, that's uh, that will be interesting. I'm, I'm now intrigued by that documentary. You can tweet us this morning at Off The Ball or at Off The Ball AM where... Um, going to get the rest of Brian O'Driscoll's death chart just after 8.15 this morning where we rank our Irish centres inside centre 3-1 to one, outside centre 3-1 to one as well uh, two um, very interesting athletics guests coming your way Gary Ryan is a former Olympian Dr Tom Cummin is a, an athletics coach uh, two very renowned uh, guys when it comes to injecting speed into Irish sport they've worked with Munster Alan Quinlan was in yesterday just talking about the impact that they were able to have on him and on his running style and just like getting a little bit of extra speed into him so this is something that we've been a little bit uh, obsessed with since our 2015 roadshow down in Cork here's Dervil O'Rourke talking about how bad Irish athletes can be at the mechanics of sprinting have a look at this I think there's a lot to be said for correct sprint mechanics and running mechanics and that being taught when kids are quite young I was lucky I did some gymnastics as a child and then I did a lot of running but I got I was in a really great co- club which taught me really well and I just think specialising you know you have these kids who are just playing rugby when they're really young and I just think why are they not on a track running learning to run correctly and I just think there's a lot to be said for that but I don't know is that a simplistic view well maybe not uh, when you watch a soccer game professional when you watch Peter Amani play rugby do you mm-hmm. think he's not running properly um, not, Peter, <laughs> not, not, not Peter specifically, oh, but, yeah. but, but professional rugby players, soccer players, are their sprint mechanics good? Well, what I recently, um, Simon Zebo would have been in my club when I was a kid. Right. He was a lot younger than me. And when I see him run, run on a rugby pitch, I always think you can tell that he's a runner. Right. And so I do it the opposite way. I pick out the people who I think have a running background. Um, really basic stuff, just lifting your knees, like lift your bloody knees. You know, I see people hitting a wing and I'm like... Yeah, lift your knees like I'm um, sharing like at the they TV. Don't, they don't bend their knees. They high just enough. don't lift them high enough. There's not enough drive through the ground. But you know, I don't play rugby. Like no one tackles me in my sports. So I have a lot of respect for what sure, they do. Sure. <laughs> so, I think Peter Manny was in the room, hence why he was singled out there. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure he was. I wasn't working that particular road show. It's really interesting, though, what she says, that you can actually pick out somebody on a ball-playing team and say that person has the correct mechanics of actually running. And also when people talk about that, how it's such an early thing when you're a sprinter or any runner, really, that the difference that that must make for people who can actually be taught the correct way to run if they've got any natural speed must be huge. Yeah. And uh, particularly in rugby. Uh, like Obviously, as you said, Quinny was telling us yesterday about the sort of explosivity that they were being trained with. But even kind of on a less technical level than that just technique like I'm not sure how much technique went into training rugby players uh, years ago I'd imagine very very little but clearly it's something that's come in more and more here's the thing that's elite sport right and it's almost it's not that it's too late there's clearly going to be benefits from it so as Quinlan said yesterday when he was sitting here it was like yeah, yeah we did notice like very quickly um, and you just feel that if like every if there are progressive GAA counties out there then they're getting their GAA clubs 
around the county to teach their under 8s, under 10s, under 12s how to sprint and what their sprint mechanics are so that that county can get fast. That's how, that's how I would try and incentivise people to do this. Because otherwise, if you, if you at Central, if you at Sport Ireland say we need to make the whole country faster because we're a really small country and whatever our advantage is, the best advantage we have is being able to get a load of people to do things really quickly because we're really small. We can get messages out there. We can, we can activate things quickly. Um, well, how, how is it going to happen? You know, do you have to send the kids to the athletics club, or can you bring the athletics clubs to football and rugby and gymnastics and everything else? I don't know. I'm just. I think we need to do as much as we possibly can as a group so that everybody improves, and suddenly, like all our sports, get faster. I would say that the best, like obviously both of those ideas are good, bringing athletics people into GEA and sending kids out to athletics club who ordinarily play GEA. If I had to sense which one was better, I would say the latter, because that way that kid is playing GEA and is also competing in athletics. And it's not just a technique that they gain from that, it is also the other skills that you build up, even teamwork skills when it comes to relay and things like that. It's not just necessarily you're learning that for your GEA, there is things, even from a GEA perspective, that you could bring to athletics when it comes to the, the less technical elements of, of uh, being skilled in that sport. Yeah. All right, we'll talk about this a bit more a little bit later on. As I said, you can tweet us at Off The Ball or you can leave a comment for us wherever you're watching. Here's what's coming up. Irish Athletics around about 8.45 in the future for it. Uh, bring the sports news with Darren Cleary around about 8.35. The death chart from Brian O'Driscoll this morning at 10 past 8. And right now, we're going to bring you the sports pages. Okay, so... Uh, I have mostly got the, yeah, Gordon Darcy's column in the Irish Times this morning. Sorry, Eddie, great leaders like Sexton talk to referees. Um, this is Eddie Jones still dictating the uh, agenda for everybody this week. Barnes' noble effort. See what they did? Barnes' noble effort. One jink off the right foot and a decent pass changed my life. So this is Robert Kitson, who we had on the show yesterday, and uh, talking about Stuart Barnes' new book, a uh, new book looks at why players must never underestimate the power of imagination. Barnes and Noble effort. Get it? No? No. No, yeah, I do. No. Barnes and Noble? Ah, yes. Ah, yes. Of course. Uh, Captain Hawkshaw, ready to lead, ready for lead role, sorry, after successful crossover. So, um, a former Dublin minor hurler will captain the Ireland under-20 team. Uh, David Hawkshaw, who played with St. Bridget's and has a shout-out to Keith Barr and Johnny McGurk um, as former coaches for him. Uh, which is interesting. Um, I mean, if you're a brilliant under-18 athlete and the professional sport in town comes calling, and yet, you know, you love this other thing, what are you going to do? You'd want to really love the other thing to turn down the professional team, wouldn't, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you, yeah. It's, it, 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 the same story really applies to AFL players or potential AFL players. It's much harder, though, right? Cause it, like, but you've got to go to the other side of the world. Yeah. Whereas this is like, I can... And you haven't played that sport. Yeah. You know, I can live at home, and if it doesn't work, I can go back to being a member of my GEA club like, and play at a really high level, because I'm obviously very good at it. So um, I'd say you're going to see a lot more recruitment coming at that, at that stage as well. The, the ones who slip through the net, you know, there'll be like much better, more pronounced effort to try and get those into the professional system at 18, 19, 20 in the future. 75 grand each, the bonus for Irish players to retain the slam. You know, they obviously want to retain the slam. They're like, yeah, I'll take my 75 grand. Thank you very much. Uh, wouldn't you? Well, if that's the only incentive, then we're going to get hockeyed by England at the Aviva Stadium Why? this weekend. Because the incentive for them is a far greater. 
if you're only putting it down into financial terms, the English players would make a bomb off uh, winning the Grand Slam, a hell of a lot more than the Irish players. Uh, all the figures are contained there in that piece. Um, so, like, there, there is some sort of bonus even for England finishing second, which is kind of smart because they're certainly not finishing first in this thing. Well, no, it's not smart for the RFU. No. Well, it's smart from a player's perspective. Yeah, yeah this is the, the financial mismanagement that has cost the RFU so, uh, so critically. Irish Life have been announced as um, an official partner to Athletics Ireland. That's Patience Jumbagula at the announcement at um, the National Sports Campus. Um, Shefflin has it to become the next Cats boss. That's uh, Tommy Walsh. Uh, was doing some press yesterday, and um, yeah, so basically we've we've kind of known that the succession race for who was going to take over after Brian Cody had been open for a while, the succession stakes, and there are so many different players who might be, you know, who have been part of that era, who might be ready to do it. Um, you look at what Eddie Brennan is doing, he's going out and getting coaching experience outside of the county, at inter-county level, to see what that is like, just to see what that ebb and flow of, of the work week is like, and I don't know, I mean... Do you want it immediately after? If it continues to go the way it's going, you probably do. But if he makes a comeback and wins in All-Ireland, then you're like, I'm just going to wait a couple of years. Yeah. I'm just going to wait until this whole thing calms down a bit and expectation is low. And then, Lazarus-like. How low are expectations right now in Kilkenny? They did draw with Galway last year. I'd say expectations are not low. They're never low. Uh, Does Brian Cody do an Alex Ferguson on it and select his successor? Does he have a big say in who succeeds him after he leaves? And whenever it's going to be, who knows? And the other scenario here is, does Henry Shefflin start to get itchy feet himself if Brian Cody kind of defies all logic and keeps going? Keeps going. And uh, as you say, wins another All-Ireland. Uh, like the, the, there, is there going to be a situation where uh, someone like Brian Cody is going to give up after winning another All-Ireland? You say it'll be a bad time to take it after they win an All-Ireland. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure he would. I'm not sure he's got to where he is by quitting after some sort of success. It doesn't feel that way, does it? I mean, it, I, like, he's entitled to continue going as long as he wants because he's the greatest manager of all time. So, um, but as Tommy points out, Henry Shefflin, first season, wins the Kilkenny title, wins the Leinster title. It's like, this guy's pretty good, it looks like. Yeah, like Henry Shefflin and Brian Cody have one thing in common and they are embarrassed by defeat. Maybe, maybe... There's a, a point next year, the year after, where they appoint Shefflin as the successor and there's a crossover period. I don't know. Do you bring him in in some sort of backroom capacity? I don't know. I mean, that's a, like... Uh, but then, if you do that, so that's a significant change for Shefflin because he wouldn't be a pundit anymore and he wouldn't... Well, it would be hard to be a pundit as, as often as he has been. And also, and it probably wouldn't seem that right. And also, he might have to give up the job of managing Ballyhale so maybe you're better off continuing with the experience you're getting now and doing the analysis It seems to me that Kilkenny GEA need to on a county board level appoint Henry Shefflin to some role in the next couple of years like whenever the underage roles become available again that Henry Shefflin should be top of that list because it is where all the managers tend to come from in terms of like you could just look across to, to the other code right now where did Jim Gavin really ply his trade and really prove himself that he was going to become the next Dublin manager when it was at underage level with Dublin yeah, I don't know. Is it a bit different? Um, like most of the other inter-county managers, a lot of them, a fair few of them, would have just taken the senior gig. Or Anyway, it doesn't really matter. Shefflin's going to get the job, right? Eventually. Uh, Cardiff in shock at air crash. Mbappe and Henri lead tributes after club's record signing is feared dead. The World Cup winner, Kylian Mbappe, led the tributes last night as football struggled to come to terms with the disappearance of Emiliano Sala, Cardiff City's record signing, who's feared to have died in an aircraft crash in the Channel only days after joining the Premier League club. 
Absent player angries, sorry, angers Sarri. Andreas Christensen is facing questions about his future Chelsea after angering Maurizio Sarri by leaving the subs bench during last Saturday's 2 0 defeat away to Arsenal. He's uh, 22, he's fallen out of favour under Sarri this season, having established himself as a regular starter under Conte, so we'll see what happens there. And cricket comes first for Bruce. An interesting, slightly nasty story here. Uh, so Sheffield Wednesday take on Chelsea in the FA Cup on Sunday. But while the struggling Skybet Championship side play at Stamford Bridge, their new manager Steve Bruce will be in Barbados following England's cricket team. Now, Bruce got the job and had a deal done with Sheffield Wednesday that he would start on the 1st of February. He's recovering from surgery and he's spending some time with his family after the death of both of his parents in the last year while he was working at Villa. The deal was he starts in February. What he does between now and February is his business, right? Yeah, absolutely. Except he's actually out in Barbados watching cricket instead of watching Sheffield Wednesday. So, like, Sheffield Wednesday knew what they were getting. Like, they can't now say, ugh, do we need you to, like, just do it secretly? Come on, come on. Well, you know the Sheffield Wednesday fans are going to be like, where were you last week, Steve? Maybe uh, the time away from England will actually just give him some sort of mental freshness that's required to, to succeed in the division. Who knows? Back page of the Herald is Boys Bag Bio. This is Vakun Isuf Bio, who's signed for Celtic in a £2 million deal. A striker going for £2 million. It feels like it's the year 2003, reading out that headline. Back page of the Irish Daily Star is the last goodbye. Salah in emotional farewell before playing goals missing. Uh, and it's the same story, really, across most of uh, the rest of the back pages. Uh, the mirror goes with tragic Emiliano told me joining Cardiff was the happiest day of his life. And uh, the search has just resumed right now. We're, we're hearing this morning, so the search continues. Uh, the back page of the Sun then goes with Emiliano was so excited. He told me signing was one of the best days of his life. That's the Cardiff City Chief Executive, Ken Chu. Uh, the back page of the Irish Daily Mail then is, if you don't find me, you know what happened. Cardiff Striker's final haunting message before his plane disappeared. And then the back page of the Guardian is prayers for Salah. Fans unite as they hold vigil for a missing star. That's a picture from Nantes yesterday evening. And then the Daily Telegraph go with their exclusive interview with Victoria Pendleton. I knew how I wanted to kill myself. She reveals her crippling descent into depression and how surfing saved her life. Uh, yeah, BBC are reporting this morning that um, Salah reportedly sent a WhatsApp voice message to his family saying he was really scared before boarding the plane. Uh, media in Argentina reported that he said, I want a plane that looks like it's going to fall apart. So um, ultimately that proved to be the case. Uh, a couple of um, quick texts for you. First of all, Ireland was five and my county wasn't even playing must get on to my parents and tell them they did an awful job. I vaguely remember it. But they did. I do clearly recall my dad marking the programme as part of lifelong training he's been doing and, I, and still haven't mastered. Hashtag OTBM says Isla Cody. Good morning to you, Isla. How are you doing? Uh, Kean Ryan says uh, Cody doesn't have an ego like Ferguson, so no, he won't be picking his successor. DJ Carey will be the next senior manager after Cody. He is current under-21 manager. Hashtag OTBM. Well, that would make uh, a lot of sense, the, the, the lack of an ego thing. He doesn't really have an ego. He's just driven completely by winning and winning and winning. Was, was the Ferguson thing uh, a pure ego trip? Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, hand pass cop-out sets football back five years as Central Council caves. This is the Brownie Beach today, uh, Owen's favourite column today. He is in 100% agreement with yeah. Brian Brownie. Well, no, I'm in uh, agreement with his take on the hand pass rule. Um, he does kind of sort of back up the rise in ticket prices a little bit. But other than that, he gets into the idea of the vote. He does point out that it was a 25-23 vote, which uh, he asks, were, were seven delegates absent or did they abstain? Oh, why is it? <laughs> really? I did not know that. I did not know that there were supposed to be seven more votes than uh, whatever that is, 48. 
Uh, so there was supposed to be 55 votes. I, this is the first I'm hearing of this. And he just basically makes the point that I've been trying to say all week here that, you know, we're not saying that this would have saved the game whatsoever, but the power of the inter-county managers, the powers of the, of the players, uh, just has taken over here and clearly Central Council, at least one person at Central Council, surely was swayed by some of the poison against the hand-pass rule that was being spouted across the last couple of weeks. That surely was enough to swing one vote. And if one other vote hadn't swung that way, it probably would have passed uh, due to a casting vote after a tie. He's quite, like, Bernie's very uh, tough on the the GPA here. Uh, He he talks about the the canvassing uh, from the GPA. He calls them, he compares them to the DUP. The GPA is like a sporting version of the DUP, opposing everything except what's in their narrow interests, while managers tend to be deeply suspicious of rule changes. Now, I'm not sure about that. Like, I think it was in the GPA's interests to canvas the players on this and to put forward uh, their opinion to Central Council and to the Rules Committee who are going to make a decision on this. Uh, I'm not sure, can you actually blame the GPA? Um, and com- I, I don't think it's necessarily fair to compare them to the DUP, necessarily. Like, I mean, the, like, the GPA is, as it says in the tin, there to support the players. And the players weren't happy with this. Now, do I think that the players' voice should have been considered alongside the managers as one of these really important things in this debate? Maybe not, but I still think, you know, if you're Hang in the on, GPA, I, it's kind of yours. You've got to consider them, right? Yeah, you've got to you, consider you, them. You but, give it appropriate but it consideration that, and you say, it's really good that, you, that you're involved and thanks very much for your, and like, please keep explaining what these real changes are to your members. You're the easiest conduit for us to get to every single, you're the one with the email numbers and the, the email address and the phone numbers to get the information out there. But what we're doing is an experiment. And at the end of the experiment, let's have informed rational, calm, analysed data and talk about it. But they didn't do that. They were like... Well, that's it. I I just feel that the view of the whole thing was swayed by a very small sample size. Like, he does point out that like Dublin's first team hadn't even experienced this. Kerry's first team hadn't experienced this. There was a, a lot of players who hadn't even got to grips with this. There was, obviously, the Mechanic Cup is the biggest pre-season competition. What was it, 11,000? Even more at the yeah. Mechanic Cup final? So yeah. these were the counties that cared the most about the hand-pass rule. And uh, if you want to kind of um, use stereotypes here, they probably wouldn't have been in favour of uh, bringing in this hand-pass rule with most of the Ulster counties. So... Uh, I kind of agree with him, but I'm not sure about uh, the DUP line. Uh, so James Tracy is disappointed in not making the Six Nations squad. Has big ambitions. It's James and his giant reach. Tracy Golds is the headline on the other end. Now place. that is that tabular morning to you. Yeah, yeah, that's class. On the other side of that, obviously, is the Ronaldo story. One of the Ronaldo stories that are in the papers at the moment. Ronaldo rumbled for 19 million Irish tax deception. Uh, he had to tweet, "No, it's fine. It's all fine. Everything's perfect." Which obviously, you know. Sounds a little bit like, uh, oh, it's fake news. Fake news. Don't, don't read the story about me nearly going to jail for not paying 19 million in tax. Cristiano Ronaldo's life right now is like that meme of the dog with the hat on who's sitting in that house and there's fire everywhere and he's just like, this is fine. Where are we going next? Okay. Uh, Serena Williams lost. Oh, wow. That's mad. Sorry, I'm just looking at the, uh, the replays of this. So Pliskova beats her 7-5 in the third set, but Williams leads 5-1 in the third set and gets injured gets an injury in her foot and then loses the next six games to lose the whole thing I think it was juice at that point she may even have had a match point right uh, to go through to the semi-finals so um, that, that's a pretty heartbreaking way for uh, Serena Williams to lose the reason I'm interested in this at the moment is that she needs one more to 
either match or beat Margaret Court. And Margaret Court is one of the worst people in the history of sport. And as soon as her name is erased from the top of the... Um, and whatever you think about Serena Williams, and I, I know Digger is busy tweeting me as we speak. <laughs> uh, She's a better think, person than... Way better. Yeah. Whether it's not even, they're not even in the same ballpark. Uh, like, doesn't Margaret Court get a lot of... Uh, coverage during the Australian Open. Does she? As in, like, she is an Aussie. She's kind of revered down there at the moment. So to, for her to do it at the Australian Open would have been... Yeah, would have been Like, class. I know that, like, obviously, Billie Jean King has come out publicly over the last couple of years and uh, said exactly what you said, that you were a terrible human being, Margaret, and uh, you need to get away from tennis. So I think that, that people have stepped back a little bit. But always when it comes to the Aussie Open, you kind of... You, you think of Margaret Court. You think of uh, how she's revered down there because... They would say, a lot of people there would say that she's one of their greatest ever sports people, uh, whereas other people want to kind of erase her from history. So to see Serena actually uh, surpass her at the Australian Open yeah. might have been a, a rare positive. Oh, it would class, yeah. All right, look, we uh, recorded this with Brian O'Driscoll earlier this week. It's the latest edition of our Irish Rugby Depth Chart. It's about the centres, funnily enough. Have a look. All right, so we've been uh, doing our power rankings for the various positions. We'll finish up with the back three with Tommy Bow later on this week. But Brian O'Driscoll is here to talk to us about the 12 and 13 for Ireland and the relative strength and depth we have at the minute. It's a pretty healthy situation we find ourselves in. Yeah, never seen it before, th- that strength and depth, where you could pick, like, straight away, five great choices. Yeah. And that's before you get into a Stuart McCluskey who could do a great job for you, Rory Scannell, um, Tom Farrell, who's now finding himself in the in the mix in the international squad for the first time. So, um, yeah, we are um, in in rude health in the centre position. Does it matter who plays twelve, who plays thirteen, in all those combinations? Do you need to play be able to um, be, if you're going to play your way into the team? Do you need to be able to do a little bit of both? I think it helps. I think certain certain moves will dictate that personnel will switch around. So there's always a little bit of left and right. Yeah. Um, myself and Gordon Darcy played 12 and 13, but at times I would have found myself in the 12 jersey. So, um, yeah, it's, that's largely for first phase, the number on your back. Yeah. After that, it's just play heads up. And, um, you know, you'll use, if you have a Chris Farrell in there, you know, you're, you're going to use him to give you advantage line. But yet, you know, we've seen the subtlety of his hands as well, which, you know, will deceive teams. So you've got to have a mixture to your game because, there's 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 a, an expectation to carry quite a lot in the centre in close in close quarters in Joe Schmidt's teams where you know they'll hit up and then use the centres to hit up again. So you know you have to be quite durable and you have to be able to pack a punch. Which you know the the, the mentioned the centres I mentioned. I'm talking about the other ones of Addison, Farrell, Bundy, Aki, uh, Henshaw, and Ringrose as the as the five that um, are vying for probably four centre positions. On the on, on the, the plane. On the, on the plane. Yeah, yeah. I think I think the, the the thing is that I think Addison's going to go because of his, his versatility. Yeah. Because he can play wing. I think he's. I think he might even be recording the fastest times. All oh, right. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I think it might even be quicker than Stockdale. Right. I think. Um. Certainly, of the centres, he's comfortably the fastest. Um. At straight line speed. Um. So you know he can play wing. He's played wing and sail. He's played full back a lot. Did a great job for Ulster at thirteen. So I think at the moment um, he's a shoe in for the for the thirty one. Right, as a fullback on top of the four or as one of the four. No, on top of the four. I right. think that's that's where you know he, he really helped Joe Schmidt out. But then at the, it's going to be at the at the loss of somebody else in the, in, in the back three. Yeah. 
So it seems uh, it's him versus Larmer for the twenty-three jersey at the moment. Yeah, yeah, and I think he's now starting to really push as as a, a more viable option um, for twenty-three. I, I think he might get into the starting twenty-three against against England, even oh. though Larmer's been outstanding every time that um, that he, he's been involved in a twenty-three. I just think when you can cover three positions, that's what you call meteoric in terms of a rise. It's like not involved at all in Irish rugby. I was talking to you know some of the boys over in, in England about you know about him and you know he was a nice player in the Premiership, um, had some injuries and was talked about you know a couple of seasons ago about maybe being a potential England prospect, but that fell by the wayside very quickly. And the speed at which he's gone into um, to Ulster and started playing really well, got capped in November and has continued with great performances. I think a huge amount of their back play up north has been down to his addition. Right, well that's always a good sign. Let's talk through the, uh, the, the 12s and 13s and who might be in the pecking order for the 12s. So we'll start with the 12s. Well, well I, it's, it's, it's Henshaw who's, who's, who's I, who I think is Joe, is Joe Schmidt's number one. Um, but he's struggled with a lot of injuries over the course of the last three seasons. Yeah. You know, he's... You know, he's been around a long time. He's, he he was around for a year before. You know, my my final year, he was in the mix. He was even training with us the year before that. So he's probably in the squad six seven years, and probably doesn't have as many caps as he should have because he's picked up big injuries as well, shoulder injuries, uh, joint injuries. So his durability when he play when he plays and his engine and his um, he, you know, he's one of those players that's capable of spending six months out and you can throw him straight back in yeah. and not a bother. He just has such a brilliant engine. Um, and then I think, you know, his, his starting partner in the in first choice is Gary Ringrose. Um, Does that help to play together for I, answer? I think it has. I think it has. If the, you know, that, that element of telepathy of understanding one another's game has been honed. Um, playing with the Ireland out half as well, you know, certainly helps, helps your cause too, you know, creating a, a three-quarter line that plays every week yeah. um, and trains together every week at least, maybe not plays um, you know, because of the amount of games as a collective they play for, for in the Pro 14. Um, but he, um, he's a, he is a terrific player. Uh, you know, Ring Rose, I think he just does the basics extremely well, doesn't make very many errors, um, still has real X-factor, reads the game very well, defensively incredibly strong. Um so I think they're the, they're the uh, number one and two choice. That said, every time Bundyaki has played in a green jersey, he has been excellent. Really, really good. Scored a lot of tries. Yeah. Um, he, was the, he was the mainstay through injuries to other player, to, to, to the other three players in the Six Nations. I think Bundy played all five. Yeah. Um, where you know, Farrell played one, played really well, got injured. Uh, Henshaw played two, dislocated his shoulder. Ringrose was late into that, played the final two. So um, Joe didn't hasn't found himself with the, this no. major headache of having f- those four fit and raring to go and playing well because Farrell's now starting to get back into some really good form after his long layoff. If you're Schmidt, you just say, "Oh, look, it's just the this week thing. I'm not. This isn't my first choice forever. This is my first choice this week." Yeah, well, and that's always been the way with him. Do you keep it mixing up, even if everybody's fit, or do you give it a? For now, do you give it a duo the chance to nail it down? Because you, you only you only mix it up if it's going to help your game plan, or it's going to help you beat one of the opposition in 
a Six Nations. I think that the you know his his trying out combinations and wondering what what you know what someone's someone's ability is like. Those days are behind us. I think we've we've seen all of that in the of the course of the last two years. He knows what he's getting from different personnel, and and all four of those and now Addison as well have always delivered for him. So. It's for me. That's it. It's a need. It's it's. It, I would. I feel for Scannell because he has. He's played well. Yeah. Tom uh, Farrell's been really good for Connacht, um, but I just don't see. And McCluskey has had another good season for Ulster, but I, I do not see. I think they're a good bit away from these four. Okay. Sorry, I was going to ask: Is there a chance that Chris Farrell plays at twelve alongside Ringrose at thirteen? Like um, Farrell is more of a thirteen. Is he? Yeah, he does. You don't see him playing at twelve much. Um, it's funny. Some, some you 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 would associate the bigger yeah. player, the guy that could get you advantage line, um, to play in a twelve. But he's always favoured the thirteen jersey, and thirteens can come in different forms. You don't have to be one way or another. You don't have to be elusive and um, like an outside break. Um, you know, you've you, I've seen you know Philip Philip Sella had a bit of everything. He was a big unit. You know, carry powerfully, um, great evasion skills, good passing game, um, and then you know you can have. You know, I was. I would have been one of the smaller thirteens. Um, Farrell is a very, very different type of thirteen. That said, he still has nice work for a big man. Good passing game. Yeah. Good offloader, and very is, hard to stop. His skill set is more prototypical twelve, though, isn't it? Well, yeah, I would think so. Ordinarily, yeah, it is. It is. And if Joe Schmidt said to him, "I want you playing 12, he'd say, "Okay, gives the jersey." <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I think that there has to be a flexibility. It, it's 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 one thing attacking in the twelve jersey. It's a it's a different thing defending in the thirteen jersey. Yeah, the defensive positions are quite different. So I think you have to have a bit more expertise um, in in knowing what you're doing there, and that's where Henshaw has the versatility of playing twelve and thirteen. Um, Bundy, um, you know. Plays a bit of thirteen as well as twelve. Farrell more so thirteen. Again, Ringrose can play twelve if he was asked to, but he, he's better at thirteen. Yeah. Um. He's yeah. He's more of a reader rather than someone in straight up collisions. That said, he's a very proficient tackler. So uh, it's it's hard to um it's hard to to pick holes in. Um, in any of their games. Yeah. It's also hard to be definitive about where the actual ranking is here because of the small sample size that we've got because of the injuries. As you say, let's say everybody is fit <clears throat> and you've got Henshaw and, Ring- uh, Henshaw and Ringrose as your starting 12 and starting 13. Is it fair to say that we can conclude now that if Henshaw goes down, Aki gets in. If Ringrose go- goes down, Farrell gets in? Um, no, because because. Bundy and Robbie played together in Connacht and were very effective. So, um, so Gary goes down. There, there's a flexibility of Robbie being able to play 12 and 13, 15 at a stretch. Um, That's always a We've never seen it though. Like. Yeah, I think he likes 15 too. I think, right. yeah, I think he's, he, you know, if he had his way and, and he was the coach, he yeah. might, he might enjoy a bit more time at, at, at 15. Um, it be interesting to see what happens with that development. You know, if after the World Cup, Rob Carney decides to to move on, or whether the the, the feeling is that there's you know time to invest in some of the younger players, Larmer or Conway, or yeah. or you know a position or or an Addison, 
or um, or maybe Robbie Henshaw to try and fit your best players in, and that's what has to happen. You know, remember years ago, Shane Horgan, you know, never playing, never played on the wing before in his life, and he, he got capped internationally as a winger and became a winger thereafter. Yeah. Because you, it's just about getting your best ball players on the park, and and when you've got four centres of the caliber of the ones we've mentioned. If you can have a positional switch where you can keep, you can get three of those four on the pitch, um, and they'll do as good a job. Well, then why wouldn't you do that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's why Leinster wanted to keep Joy Carvey and stick him at fullback, but not to not to mention the war anymore. We've had enough of that. So <laughs> that's been a pretty good time for all of us. I'm pretty happy. That loan period is working out well. Ah, it's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> that so it looks like it's first choice. Hench on Ringrose is is either are either of them ahead of the other in terms of being close to being guaranteed. Like it seems like Ringrose is definitely yeah. A name I think of the sheet. I think he's I think he's number one. If you were to pick a centre, I'd go that. I'd, I'd probably order wise, I'd go Ringrose first, and then, and then very closely followed by Robbie, and then Bundy, and then Chris Farrell. Right. Internationally, how do we stack up against everybody else? Like really good. I I was I did an interview fifteen minutes ago, and I was asked what England player would I want. You know, if I could pick one, who would I want to bring across? Yeah. And I went through the whole thing. <laughs> and then the journalist said, so that's none. <laughs> and I, I then backtracked because I didn't want them to say none <laughs> in his article. So I said, oh, I fit Manu too laggy, but I don't think Manu would want to. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't think you're dropping either of our, our guys. Um, so Is it a poll again in our team? Um, or was it only Jason? Yeah, I think Billy does. Yeah, I think that that's maybe I should ring him back up and say, Billy, <laughs> too late, I missed opportunity. Um, but there's really not like yeah. even even the com- the the second row. James Ryan for me is you know, he's in. That's it. Yeah, and then Dev Toner for for your line out, and now what he's doing around the park and our front row. Yeah, you know their hooker's not you know. Is certainly no better than Rory Best. Whatever their option is, there, no way. Um, back row, maybe Billy would have been would have been the choice. Thing. I'm my phone out and text you, man. <laughs> and what about the the All Blacks at centre? Are we as good as them? At I the think moment? we're better than them. Right? Yeah, I think I think that um, they haven't been able to replace Nanu and Smith. I think that's been because they've had Barrett and who's carved teams up on his own and been so exceptional over the last three years that he's really made life a little bit easier for his centres. The, the, Sonny Bill hasn't been quite at the, the standards that he's, that he's previously set. Yeah. Um, has obviously moved on. Uh, Leonard Brown has been in and out of the team. And um, See the way it's not even Smith and it's a partnership. Yeah. And that's the greatness of that. Do we need to have... Henshaw and Ringrose nailed down a partnership and decide that we are great as a partnership now, and that like that. But that is what it is. That's I think that's we just haven't seen it given. together a lot. But that's because of injuries, and yeah. and you, you can't help that. Um, but I I do think Rath that that is well. a that is a partnership that should go for another seven or eight years uh, if they if they can remain healthy comfortably. Yeah. So I'm going to ring the New Zealand Herald and say Brian O'Driscoll says no All Blacks will get into the Ireland team. Um, he's not joking by in, the way. In, <laughs> Instead of, instead of Ringrose or Henshaw, no, I wouldn't. Sonny Bill, when, when Sonny Bill's fit, um, yeah, I, I think when he's going well, I think he'd get in our team. But I, I, I don't know if I'd pick, you know, Ryan Crotty, nice player, broke our hearts years ago, but 
Would I pick him ahead of Henshaw? Don't think so. Um, and I wouldn't pick um, Goodhue ahead of Gary Ringrose, no way. Is Gary Ringrose at Conrad Smith's level just yet? No. No, not yet. But he could, like... Yeah, he'll get there. Yeah, he'll get there. Well, Conrad Smith was really one of the greats, probably. Um, from, from a player perspective, he had the... He, he got the kudos. I don't know if the man in the street or everybody had a fo- has as much of an appreciation for Conrad Smith as, as perhaps they should have. He was, he was an outstanding rugby player. So that's, very, very clever. That's the aspiration for Ringrose. And he has the- yeah, he's, and he's really in, in that type of player too. You know, quite rangy, you know, quick, yeah. quicker than he looks. Um, defensively, very, very smart. Con- Conrad Smith was one of the smartest defenders around. Ryan, good stuff. Thanks very much. Yeah, so that's our uh, depth chart done in the centres. That's interesting. That like, it's not as big a decision really. Henshaw's fit. Henshaw starts. Ringo's nailed on at the moment. So everybody fit. That's your two. Yeah. So your opinion is changing. No, that's what Josh Smith's going to pick. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, it, that is true. There is. Uh, I, mean, I, I probably pick that too. But like, it would be interesting to see Chris Farrell start at twelve, just to see if he can also play there. If there's certain things, if Henshaw goes down. Probably Bunny just go straight in there, but I don't know. It's uh, the idea that Henshaw is almost flawless at times in terms of defense. Like when it comes to defense, it's like this is a, a brick wall in that channel. There, that's taken for granted, I think, sometimes. Where it's like uh, to get up to full fitness. When you get to full fitness, you start to get sharper. You start to offload a bit more, and offensively, you get better. But also that defensive solidity. I wonder, do you lose that a little bit after being out for so long? That we just take that as a granted from Robbie Henshaw. And like I, I think sometimes we do that. It's like this guy just uh, delivers time after time after time, making tons of tackles defensively. But actually, when he's been out for a little while, the thing that we take for granted needs to be brought back up as well. So maybe there is an argument that he, he's not a shoe in into the team. But in my opinion, I think so. I think it's himself and Gary Ringrose when they're both fit, and it's very very hard uh, to deviate away from that. Despite the fact that we, we've got such good depth there in that position, particularly with the two lads backing them up. Yeah. No, I, I think that. Um there's also just a, a raft of information we don't have access to, like exactly how well they're training at the moment, what their stats are from game to game, the ones that get published and then the ones that they actually keep secret for themselves. Um, so they'll know exactly how well the defence performs when player A and player B play together. And uh, I'd say it's the type of thing that we speculate on and they get right. So there's... Uh, step chart. as in Robbie Henshaw certainly we picked Bundyaki second and then Rory Scannell just not quite there yet Scannell's definitely an interesting option into the future like again having that left boot that ability to boot the ball a mile at any given moment that you need to boot the ball a mile that's very valuable yeah, it's certainly working a treat for Munster isn't it so yeah. his return to the fold has sort of enlivened that Munster backline uh, which has been brilliant. And uh, his partnership with Chris Farrell has been one of the most exciting things over the last couple of weeks from a Munster perspective. So it's definitely kind of an, an option for the future, for sure. And maybe his timing was just a little bit off, almost, that uh, I guess Chris Farrell was flying last year. He, maybe he just needed one more injury, even though we got kind of decimated more than any other position, really, in midfield during the Six Nations last year. And it seems that that's the case. He will need a bit of uh, bad luck from an injury perspective. So there's the, uh, the second graphic there, Gary Ringrose. Chris Farrell and Will Addison. So Will Addison, obviously a backup in the centres, a backup, a fullback, a backup at the wing. Uh, 
a player who's probably going to make the squad. And really interesting to hear Brian Driscoll say that he's the fastest guy on the team. Yeah, I did not know that. No. It's weird how you can't tell that stuff from watching games on TV. No. That, or it, I guess it's just in such a position. If he made a massive line break, you'd probably be able to tell. And so he said who he was faster than. Like my, my assumption was that Keith Earls is the fastest player on that team. And that it probably wasn't going to be that close. That I, I wonder, I'm, I'm talking about top speed, right? Not like, Quick, you know, not, not over 100 metres, like who's going to run the 100 metres the fastest, but like who, who hits the top speed? I would always say Keith Earls, but apparently it was Stockdale. That was interesting too. Yeah. Like Stockdale doesn't look hyper fast because he's got that giant stride. It's deceptive. Clearly, he's unbelievably fast. He just devours ground so easily. Yeah, and you just assume as well that it's like a jink and a skill and a thing. It's not, as, it's not the speed that's taking him past players, but obviously it is. Yeah, he almost looks like he's got a lumbering style, which just can't be the case whatsoever if you're up against him. He must be so speedy. I would have always thought that Jordan Armour would have been uh, the, the fastest player in that Ireland squad. Would you, yeah? Yeah, and maybe it's just because when we come back to the idea of running technique, his, Thomas Barr was in the studio last year saying, yeah, his running technique is pretty good. So for... Uh, a European medalist to actually tell him that he's got good technique. I'd naturally assume this guy is the... He's just being nice. Uh, maybe he'll just be nice. Yeah. Because I think we kind of forced that idea on him. Look at look how good Jordan Larmour is at running. Tommy's like, all right, okay, he's grand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah grand. I mean, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't win a medal at 400 metres. But, um, right, so uh, that's the depth chart. I, it's hard to see what's going to be changed. Uh, Aina Finn says, Addison can overtake Carney for 15. I mean, not this time. Not, not if Carney's fit. In time for the World Cup? Like no, I mean not not not. When you say this time, you mean this year? Let's assume Carney's fit, right? Let's just assume Carney is fit. Carney plays in the World Cup. He plays every every minute of the big games. Yeah, I, I think so. As long as Joe Schmidt is head coach of Ireland, Rob Carney will always be his first choice, and there is reason for that. We've seen his body of work in the last twelve months. Like let's not forget, we were having uh, conversations about Rob Carney versus Jordan Larmer starting the first game of the Six Nations twelve months ago. And obviously the acceptance is that we can't, you can't throw Larmer in for his uh, debut in the first game of the Six Nations. But we kind of came around to the idea that uh, come the end of the Six Nations, come the World Cup, definitely Rob Carney won't be first choice. Now I would be very surprised if he wasn't first choice. Mm. Uh, Darren Downey says, why is Addison not held in higher regard? Surely he's more balanced than Larmer. I mean... Time in the Irish game, maybe? Yeah, I think uh, that's definitely one thing. Like, um, Larmer's had those explosive moments. Um, certainly... I, look, I don't know. I mean, again, there's the information that we have that we see from our casual watching of these players when they play, and then there's the bits that the coaches see every day in training. So I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen there. Um, I don't know where Jordan Armour's best position is just yet. Like, and Hugo Fallon wants to know: Does Farrell's size help negate the line speed that Wales no doubt will bring? Like, I think that there's definitely stuff that Farrell does that. Um, is different. So if, if, if Farrell's a 13, right, then that's a very different type of 13 from Ringrose. But I can't see any coach taking Gary Ringrose, a fully fit Gary Ringrose, playing in the form he's in at the moment out of your team. No, neither can I. It's an interesting point, though, isn't it, about the size of him and just a completely different dynamic that he does bring. Like, how does that manifest itself up against line speed? Is it that you can just take the tackle a little bit longer? It gives you that extra... Half a second for everybody else to size. Yeah, how does the size like work? And you break the tackles, obviously. But even if you're not breaking all the tackles, you're you're holding on for an extra half a second just to allow everybody else to get back, and you don't get uh, 
you don't allow the jack position to emerge or something like that. It's a, like it's an interesting dynamic. It completely, he's a completely different specimen just looking at him uh, in comparison to Gary Ringrose. And I definitely agree that him being involved in matchday squads can be hugely positive from an Irish perspective. Patrick McAnany has been uh, drinking the Brexit soup. He says, Itoje, George or Hartley, Billy Vinopola, Ashton are better than Toner, Best, Stander and Earls for a start. A lot of other calls, 50-50, in regards to what English players would make the Irish team. You don't want to go and have a long, hard look at yourself, Patrick. That's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, Kevin Callahan says, uh, Hugo, I'd be more worried about England's size, not their speed of Wales. I'd start Farrell for the England game. Hashtag OTBAM. All right. Leia Healthcare have released their latest episode of a three-part series featuring World Rugby Player of the Year, Johnny Sexton, today. We're featuring it across off the ball as well. Here's episode two of The Player. It's a pretty unique thing, goal kicking. Like, if you think about it, it's, it's like playing golf in the middle of a rugby match. When a whistle goes for a kick, and your heart rate could be going through the roof and you're, you're asked to take a kick, or, you know, you could be carrying two or three knocks and you're asked to take a kick, so that's the challenge. That's why you can miss a pretty straightforward kick at times. We used to wear heart rate monitors in games. The highest was, for me, when, when the penalty was awarded, and then the rest of the time you're trying to get your heart rate down. I think having a process is the, the most important thing, um, and then the hardest thing is just trusting it, just uh, just try not to let anything else come in and get in the way. I don't think being judged as a rugby player is hard, because you know, you've know you done it so many times, and you know that when you play on a Saturday, everyone's going to be talking about it Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, until the next game, and you get used to that. But it's the stuff where you get judged for your, your personality that can that can bother me, I think. Um, because people don't actually know you. They just judge you by the 80 minutes on a, on a Saturday. They don't see you the rest of the time. So um, that's not you, you know what I mean? Over the years, you know, different incidents would have led to people thinking you're a certain type of person or that you're angrier than you actually are. But that's the hard part, isn't it? You're going to get criticised for something. It's still very hard to... to talk about yourself so I don't you'd have to ask someone else being in a team I think um, you know teaches you a lot you got to deal with people you got to learn how to deal with people um, you know people that aren't the same as yourself and, and I suppose that teaches you a lot um, so yeah rugby I think can teach you some good lessons for, for outside of rugby uh, for life really that's a uh pretty interesting. It puts me in mind of um, Andy Lee talking about the change in personality from the dressing room, the ring walk. You get in the ring and all of a sudden you're a killer. Like, and all of us who know Andy Lee from sitting here all the time know that he's like one of the world's most gentle people. Like uh, a, a proper, the very definition of a gentleman. And uh, in the ring, some guy's punching you and trying to knock you out and you're going to knock him out. That change of character. Like, Is it a change of character though? Like yeah. I, I think on that's how Andy talks about it. It's like you just you just you you morph into something completely different. The fact that he has that calmness and the way he can figure things out is surely a huge aid. Obviously, you have to bring uh, a, a level of violence to what you do just to kind of get the best out of you physically. But in terms of your mindset, I'm sure being cold and calculated, particularly in in Andy's weight division, would have been a huge help. Knowing when to spot the gap, knowing how to tactically approach it, and the fury that can sometimes. Uh, take over is surely not a good thing. Um, 
Are, like they, it's a, are there different things, though, aren't they? We're talking about different things? Well, I, I'm not sure. Like, it could, could being creating some sort of mentality that you hate your opponent actually block out your game plan going into a fight? Yeah, so that's not what he's saying, though. He's saying he transforms from like somebody who is a normal person into somebody who is like now... It's game face, and that game face involves fighting. In his case, in Sexton's, it involves like being aggressive at the line of contact and doing all that kind of stuff. It's but weird to hear him dismiss that kind of caricature of him because every player that talks about Sexton, they'll always say he's grumpy and he's cranky, and that's that's one of his assets, and that he gets the best from the players around him by being demanding and this guy who will not give you an inch, never mind the opposition. It's weird to see Sexton kind of roll back and say, well, that's not actually the person I am. I'm not actually high maintenance. I'm not grumpy, I'm not irritable, I'm a much different person away from the pitch. When most players who talk about him on a human level, they seem to suggest that that's part of his secret. That's why he's got the best out of himself and so many others over the years. Mm. It's, in, it's interesting that he talks about the heart rate there because it's such a, a common thing when you're, when, you're, when you're watching a particularly intense match, even like Munster the other day with that Carberry kick, it's like, I couldn't get my heart rate down to actually watch this, let alone uh, at the actual kicker getting his heart rate down uh, to, to kick the ball straight between the posts. The last one. The last one, the winner. That's where he orders the posts. Posts. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that is cold. That's, that's a killer instinct. Yeah. Morning. The search for the missing plane carrying Cardiff City's new player will resume this morning. Emiliano Salo is on board the light aircraft, which disappeared from radar near the Channel Islands on Monday evening. Guernsey police confirmed a number of floating objects were found in the water before the search was suspended yesterday. John Fitzgerald, chief officer of the Channel Island Air Search, said a cushion and a bent piece of metal were among the objects recovered from the sea. Sala and the pilot were the only two on board the plane. Guernsey police say chances of survival are slim. An audio recording purported to be a WhatsApp voice note recorded by Sala has been played on TV in Argentina speaking in Spanish. He said he was aboard a plane that seems like it is falling to pieces. Sala's father, Horatio, said he was speechless after learning the news via the media. I don't know what to think at this moment since a local TV news channel who were the first to call told me over the phone. I don't know what else to say. I don't know what to think. The hours go by and I've just been thinking the worst. I don't know. I spoke to him on Sunday. He was very happy because he was going back to a bigger club, which he liked. Things were going well. He was playing well. And the news that this thing happened, I don't know. There are no words to explain. Now, Sam Allardyce says the number of coaches working in England who are foreign is extremely worrying. The former manager of the England national team believes the diversity in the modern game has hampered the development of young managers. Allardyce says the Premier League is an international league played in England. The 64-year-old claims that only 15% of owners in the Premier League are English. That was proven to be incorrect. 30% of Premier League clubs are controlled by Englishmen, while 50% of Crystal Palace is also owned by an English consortium. Big Sam was speaking on TalkSport. It's just bewildering the amount of top quality coaches and managers in this country who are who sat without a job and not even getting not even getting a job to get interviewed at an Oldham or a lot of the a lot of the championship clubs now uh, that most are being owned by foreigners are now picking a foreign coach or a foreign manager, which then evolves around a first team coach who comes from abroad a reserve team coach comes from abroad and and there's four or five generally follow um in the same nationality as that as that manager which is extremely worrying um and should be extremely worrying for the whole of this country in terms of our development of uh, young coaches and young managers i mean the fa spend huge amount of millions and 
to qualify us, but we've we've not got an awful lot to say about where we get where we get our jobs from because the, well, the well, fast diminishing yeah. in in this country. Seventy two jobs in this country, seventy two managers, seventy two first team coaches, and I bet the percentage is running at probably. Thirty-five or forty percent of those seventy-two clubs are run run by or is is in charge of a, for, a foreign coach. Increasingly, becoming more more difficult to choose a career as a, as, as an Englishman in the in your own country. This is mad, isn't it? This is um, this is where uh, Brexit comes from. Like this kind of nonsensical logic. They took our jobs. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. The terrible South Park episode where they just mutter, they took our jobs it's so amazing much. Amazing South Park episode. The, the words lose all meaning. It's an amazing South Park episode. It's one of the, it's one of the all-time classics. Um, but he mentions Oldham there. It, I thought Paul Scholes was getting the Oldham gig. Like He specifically name-checked Oldham, didn't he? Yeah, it was a strange strange one to zero in on. Are they just pissed off that Scholes is getting a gig and he's clearly not qualified because he didn't do all the badges and stuff. That's uh, ginger superiority right there. Yeah, Paul Scholes getting a gig over Sam Allardyce. It's, uh, like, it's also the least surprising Sam Allardyce thing to hear, right? It's like when Neil Warnock says that his, or when he uh, exercises his view on Brexit a couple of weeks ago, it's like, yeah, this is the least surprising thing I've ever seen. But there's still sort of a disheartening nature to it, isn't there? Yeah, it's like, the, like when you look back at the, the team of Bolton that made Big Sam somebody who was able to get on the managerial carousel and make tens of millions, that team was injected through with world-class players from abroad. It wasn't just Kevin Nolan scoring headers. J.J. Okacha. Exactly. Ivan Campo. Um, he didn't sign Jorkev, did he? Did he sign Jorkev? Or did Jorkev go to uh, Birmingham? But like, it was a bunch of them. There was loads of them who completely transformed... The fortunes of that team. He that that Bolton side even had Sasa Churchage like be a really good Premier League player before he got rich and went to Aston Villa and phoned it in. He did have Jorke, yeah. Like, but it was all about Kevin Olinger. That's all that mattered in that team. I'm sure if you asked Sam Allardyce, he'd probably pick him as his favourite player. I don't understand though him bemoaning the fact he also mentioned that interview at this stage looking like the best bet is to manage outside of England. Sam's only job outside of England has been in Limerick. So it's not like he's had to go further afield to try and, and find a job. I think it's the suggestion that Premier League clubs are no longer hoodwinked into giving him the top jobs in football, I think, is more so what is upset him. Yeah, it's like, it, is, it is very dispiriting. Like, um, you know, it's of, a, it's of a piece with the coverage of Brexit in the English papers. They just don't give a shit about anything. Like, and they're trying to protect some crazy vision of... And 1960s England, which was a shithole and didn't exist. Like, best of luck, Sam. Best of luck. Now, Tommaso Shea doesn't believe Kerry are genuine contenders for the All-Ireland title in 2019. Yeah. Peter Keane is the man tasked with bringing glory back to the kingdom. He has succeeded Eamon Fitzmaurice and comes in with a good record at underage level. Keane managed the county minors to three successive All-Ireland titles. O'Shea thinks it will be at least two years before Kerry are proper contenders again. He says in the 42.ie interview, I think there will be pressure. Kerry are being bandied about as the team to take Dublin off their perch, if any team will. And I'm saying, what the F? Where's that coming from? Like, Because they don't even get the chance to go against them last year. I'm not going to be talking about Kerry having a chance of winning the All-Ireland. I think they have a lot to work on. He was watching our uh, crystal ball at the start of the year. I predicted Kerry to win the All-Ireland in 2021, which will be uh, their next All-Ireland. 
So uh, Tomas Michel obviously thinks it's going to be another two years as well. I think he's right. Ah, this is Kerry nonsense. You all think. Cute tourism. He finishes. Finest. The piece in the Indo finishes, or one of them finishes with uh, the cream always rises to the top. Kerry will always be there or thereabouts. Yeah, well, the rise they're is going to take another two years. It's no, like no, extreme, no, there or thereabouts means in an all Ireland final. It's an extremely thick uh, bucket of milk we've got going on here. The cream is going to take another two years the cream is to ferment. Be like this. We'll be drinking it with straws. Oh, absolutely. That's right. For years and years and years. I can't wait, but. Uh, <laughs> uh, for now, <laughs> for now, uh, I'm going to go milk-free. <laughs> Where did this fake Kerry humbleness come from? When uh, did Kerry start pretending to be humble? Yeah, um, we've always been humble, grounded, sure. You know, they, you don't, you don't uh, give a shite about us up above there in Dublin, do you? Says think, Owen, sitting in Dublin. I think um, that. Like, I can see why there would be a little bit of fear in Kerry, because there's all that other stuff going on in Kerry at the moment with the players allegedly involved in, who have represented Kerry at different levels. That um, was that piece that we didn't really talk about. Uh, Tony Lean was asking the Kerry manager these questions, and the video emerged of it. And I I didn't think that the Kerry manager gave a very... um, It wasn't as clear what would happen if his players had been involved in something. It was kind of like, well, I don't know who those players are. That's not a great look either, um, especially when Tony Lean said he didn't know who the players were. So, and certainly the um, the rumor mill would suggest that the players are not that hard to identify. So, like, I can see why Kerry supporters will be worried about that because that's a big thing that's happening in the background. But at the same time, there's been this infusion of amazing talent over the last couple of years, and uh, there was very specific stuff that O'Shea is talking about there, um, where you know the tackle count needs to be higher. The Dubs, if you look at the their ability not to concede goals. A lot of it is because Brian Fenton is working hard. A lot of it is because uh, those forwards are back in the cornerback position again and again and again. And they're like, oh, wow, look look who that is making that tackle. And so, you know, Kerry need to get to that level. But they can. They yeah. absolutely can. If like, work rate is an issue, skills is not an issue. It's, it's, it's incredibly tough to actually gauge uh, how Peter Keane would apply his particular set of skills to the senior job because it's hard to identify how much has actually come from him in terms of the minor teams over the last couple of years because the one thing that I noticed about those Kerry minor teams even during the David Clifford era when everybody was talking about him uh, banging in hat-tricks every week was the quality of their tackling. They were brilliant at dispossessing the man and I haven't seen a Kerry team like that before. I'm just not sure was that a particularly gifted bunch of backs or was it excellent coaching from Peter Keane. I really hope it's the latter because he'll be able to bring that to the whole senior squad this year which, as you say, is the single biggest problem with Kerry at the moment. The full back line and stopping the slaloming runs right through the heart of the defence. And I guess positionally you can actually help that just by somebody tracking back a little bit more and stopping, plugging that gap a little bit. But also the quality of tackling probably needs to be brought up a notch as well. So it'll be interesting to see how much he actually uh, brings to the table. But let's not forget it's not just the young players as well. Like bringing Tommy Walsh back into the team this year will hopefully be uh, a big move, especially with the new rules. I think Kieran Donaghy picked just the wrong time to retire. Get him back for one last one last tour of the battlefield. Spring him yeah. from the bench for the Ireland semi-final final. Footballer of the year again. Thanks very much. That's it. That's that's how I saw twenty nineteen playing out. But unfortunately, two more years for the cream to rise. That's that. It's Kieran Donaghy's fault. He's actually just stirred the pot back, and the cream is like risen to the bottom again. And uh, if he came back, the cream would have immediately risen. Risen to the bottom. Uh, fell to the bottom. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Simon Zebo has thanked Ulster after the province issued a lifetime ban to a fan found to have racially abused him. The incident occurred during Ulster's Champions Cup victory over Racing 92 at the Kingsman Stadium earlier this month. After conducting a thorough investigation, the province found that Zebo was the subject of racist taunts. Ulster thanked supporters for assisting in their investigation and also sent a written apology to both Zebo and his club. 
in tennis. Serena Williams is out of the Australian Open. She lost a dramatic quarterfinal in three sets to Carolina Pliskova, going down 6-4 for 6-7-5. Pliskova will now play Naomi Osaka for a place in the decider. The US Open champion beat Ukraine's Elena Svitolina in straight sets. Williams missed four match points before losing, but insists it wasn't a bottle job. She hit an ace or, you know, unreturnable serve. Like, I literally did everything I could on those match points. It's not like I, yeah, I can't say that I choked on those match points. She literally played her best tennis ever. And it's the end of the road for the man with a touch like a trampoline. Usain Bolt has retired from football after failing to agree a contract with Australian side Central Coast Mariners. The Jamaican former sprint star has ended his quest officially to become a pro footballer. The eight-time Olympic champion says he's now focusing on his business endeavours. Right call. Right, right decision. Uh, yeah, well, if, if we were listening to Andy Kyo there, uh, yeah, probably is the right decision. Touch like the yeah, 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 you should... Yeah, should. Stephen Reid had his say on it as well. Just wanted to announce my retirement from Olympic sprinting. <laughs> Cartilage in the knees just wasn't up to it anymore from um, Stephen Reid. Uh, yeah, like, I mean, you know, um, it, was, uh, it was a good crack, I'm sure. It was a nice little holiday. It's great for that... Central Coast Mariners. Yeah, I was going to say. It's great for their brand. Um, Who's that golfer that everybody complains? They can't? Um, and, I don't know. Just that you, you get yourself into slightly uncomfortable territory when you're an athlete like that um, who has been a superstar athlete and has had all of the benefits of being a superstar athlete for a long period of time. I just don't see how he thought it would actually work out. I mean, they took him on trial. He wanted an extortionate amount of money to play for them, despite the fact his... He wanted, he, wanted, he wanted money for them selling tickets, which is fair enough. I, wanna, I, wanna, I want my taste. But of yeah. all the teams to go to, Central Coast Mariners, I wouldn't say would be the richest team in the A-League. I mean, watching him play, I saw only the highlights of one of the first friendlies he played, and it reminded me of the time Stuart Pearce, when he was Man City manager, for some godforsaken reason no one could explain except Stuart Pearce, threw David James up front, and it was a complete disaster. It was like watching a lad plucked from the sand play football. He could run for the ball, he had a bit of pace, but he couldn't keep it at his toe, he couldn't get it out of his feet. He was also like 40 when the time he was doing it, wasn't it? It wasn't like he was like 22-year-old David James who was testing off the... So, look, Stuart Pearce is mad. I understand that. But at least there's some kind of marketing stuff going on. You Like, at least. There is the uh, cold, calculating, clammy hands of commerce around this. Well, all, all this bold, knew what they were doing. All this bold bashing isn't doing any uh, favours for our next piece, because we're talking about how great runners can make great athletes, and if we t- teach our athletes to be great runners, then... I'd say, I'd say if um, Usain Bolt had been got by an academy at the age of 9 or 10... He could have been an excellent striker. Like, oh, absolutely. Because he has the physical attributes to be a, obviously a great athlete. But whether or not you can transfer that into actually having the ability to play with the ball at your feet and do it in a way that looked more natural than it came to him at the age he's at now, I wouldn't imagine so. Yeah. Uh, so, as I say, former Olympians Gary Ryan and Dr. Tom Cummins joined me in studio uh, yesterday afternoon. They were speaking at the announcement of Irish Life Health as an official partner to Athletics Ireland. Irish Life Health are backing athletics as a sport that delivers on health, wellness and lifelong activity. So both Gary and Tom have coached outside of athletics with Gary. He just finished up with the Tip Hurlers who was with them from 2014 until last year. Uh, and then Tom, of course, was involved in Munster Rugby, uh, as Alan Quinlan was telling us yesterday. So here's Gary first telling us why there was such an appeal for a coach like him to be involved with the monster setup. 
Yeah, no, I think it was because it came from athletics. You know, um, uh, we, we were brought us, I, I suppose when I came into athletics, I came, or sorry, into rugby, specifically came in for the purpose of a speed coach. So my first year of contract was to be speed coach with the Munster team and also to feed into the national team. Uh, and it was purely because I, I had that background and I suppose we, we had uh, the ability to... Um, Work on their tech, the players' technique, improve their their speed-specific skill, um, and so that they would be more explosive on the pitch, quicker on the pitch, more reactive on the pitch. And uh, the rugby coaches and the rugby fraternity, I suppose, saw that as something they hadn't had before, um, and then that could bring positives to the team. Was there a big focus on this style in which the way Munster players were running at the time? Were they running wrong essentially for for a certain point until you came in? I, I would say that. Um, you know, we're not, we're not looking for them to be 100 meter Olympic sprinters, but the key thing is the acceleration, that first 10, 15, 20 meters. Uh, and and the, they had to improve in that area. So, for example, most of them would in two yards be standing upright. Um, instead of them being low and driving all the time uh, and keeping this low angle position, you'd see like the Usain Bolt's doing. So um, it, it was key aspects like that needed to be improved upon, definitely. And that was the big focus of my initial period with them was to bring their skill level with speed technique back up to the level it probably should be. And once that was ingrained a little bit more, then we could work on more you know, advanced types of speed training then as well. It's interesting because we spoke about this at a roadshow a couple of years ago, actually. It was down in Cork. Derville work uh, was one of the people at the roadshow. And we can actually uh, play this clip. She was speaking uh, to Joe and Ger at the time. Have a listen to this. I think there's a lot to be said for correct sprint mechanics and running mechanics and that being taught when kids are quite young. I was lucky. I did some gymnastics as a child and then I did a lot of running. But I, got, I was in a really great co- club, which taught me really well. And I just think specialising, you know, you have these kids who are just playing rugby when they're really young. And I just think, why are they not on a track running, learning to run correctly? And I just think there's a lot to be said for that. But I don't know. Is that a simplistic view? Well, maybe not. Uh, when you watch a soccer game professional, when you watch Peter Romani play rugby, do you mm-hmm. think he's not running properly? Um, not Peter, <laughs> not, not, not Peter specifically, but, oh, yeah. but, but professional rugby players, soccer players, are their sprint mechanics good? Well, what I recently, um, Simon Zebo would have been in my club when I was a kid. Right. He was a lot younger than me. And when I see him run on a rugby pitch, I always think you can tell that he's a runner. Right. And so I do it the opposite way. I pick out the people who I think have a running background. Um, really basic stuff, just lifting your knees, like lift your bloody knees. You know, I see people hitting a wing and I'm like... Yeah, lift your knees like I'm shouting like at the they TV. They don't bend their knees They high just enough. don't lift them high enough. There's not enough drive through the ground. But, you know, I don't play rugby. Like, no one tackles me in my sports. I have a lot of respect for what sure, they do. Sure. <laughs> so. Is that something you identify with, Gary? That's uh, You watch a, a field sport like that and you say, it's just not quite right, that technique. Yeah, and I think, um, I suppose, if you think about it, uh, a lot of players in sports have probably been playing that sport since they were five, six, seven. They may not have been exposed to, to a range of things. So when I kind of met them at 21, 22, they've had 18 years or 19 years of maybe poor technique and it's been kind of reinforced, reinforced, reinforced and then you're trying to undo that. So um, I think those that get a grounding in something like athletics at an early age, um, you can, I mean, I didn't need to ask the player if they'd been in an athletics club you know, at six or seven or ten, it almost was kind of self-apparent. And, you know, it's, I think speed is so important now and it's kind of so valued in pretty much every sport. You look at the NFL draft and what has happened in that. You look at scouting stats and, and, and you know, soccer's become so data-driven around how they're, they're scouting now. 
and speed has become so important from such an early age. And if you have good technique, you can get quicker. And it's really a valuable commodity. So, yeah, I would, I suppose, kind of geeky. You'd kind of look at people running in any sport and kind of go, oh, if I had him, you know, we talk about knee lift or leg drive or whatever body position, as, as Tommy was talking about, um, and how they could improve, you know, particularly when you're talking about short distances. You know, in, in hurling, the average sprint is 14 metres. So how much can you lose or gain in 14 metres in a significant amount? Because all you need to win is every contest by a metre. Um, and it makes a huge difference. So if you can get good technique, it makes a big difference. Uh, is there a team sport in particular that has kind of a, a record of being better when it comes to the technique? You say you watch a lot of sports. When you think about, you know, we learn so much from the States and, and kind of almost where they are in lots of things. And you think about, not necessarily that they've done this within American football, but you see how many more track and field athletes are now finding their way through the NFL draft into professional contracts in, in, in the NFL. Um, I think you see rugby is probably and, and a lot of the professional sports have certainly taken on board this idea of athletic development and are now employing specialists that that have a background in track and field um, and so that they are getting at an earlier age in the academies um, some grounding in, in decent technique but as I said it probably is important to get that from 8, 9, 10 as well and having that exposure to athletics I think is a great sport for it. Yeah, Gary Ryan speaking to me there yesterday. We're going to pick up the interview now with the second section. Gary Ryan here also speaking. And I put the idea to him that we're just not a fascination of, of runners. I, I think, I suppose we were, you know, probably that first generation. There were, there were sprinters before us who'd done reasonably well, but probably the first generation that competed at European Championships, World's Olympics um, on a regular basis. And it was, you know... <sighs> I'd often got that, you know, in the beginning, and you probably got it as well, is you're Irish, and that's it. You can't sprint. You can do cross-country. Um, but it's we were the first generation, and the others have taken it on from there, and it just needed to change the mindset of, look, you know, we can do this. Now, we, need, need, we didn't have maybe the facilities and the coaching around at the time at, as widespread, um, and that's certainly improved, and that's certainly helped, I think, this generation. But the first thing you've got to do is... You know, go, yes, I can do this. And look, I am who I am. I'm, you know, physically probably a couple of inches short and, uh, you know, started late that I could have maybe won Olympic medals. But at least I got more out of myself than maybe was expected, I suppose. So um, we can be that. We can be anything we want to be, to be honest with you, mm. if we work, if we plan it and work at it hard enough from an early age right through the system. And the early age is, is so vital as well and it doesn't necessarily have to be a very rote way of learning either no, because no. Like, like you look every Sunday morning the park runs all around the country and all yeah. the young people that are taking part in that. I wonder if there's sort of uh, a less instructive way to actually perhaps use those park runs as an avenue to teach people the correct way of running that of course you can go and enjoy yourself but maybe to have uh, somebody like yourselves there or anybody who's competed at a high level to actually say if you lift your knees a little bit higher uh, you'll actually run a little bit quicker and while still enjoying those park runs you might actually have a generation of athletes who might be that bit quicker. Well even in, in that there's 350 or plus athletics clubs around the country yeah. with people who have actually gone through coaching courses and understand this and that's at right in our doorstep and maybe we don't access that expertise enough and maybe that um, maybe people could just do that is actually right I'll go and I'll get some coaching here and it doesn't have it's whatever age you are it could be you know the park run people as well but going into athletic clubs and trying to learn a little bit more which will make their whole experience a bit better um, but I mean Tom will talk to you about the fundamental movements and, and how important they are at an early age and how specific they are in, in teaching I guess but I think we could all get better whatever time we are if we actually went and got a little bit of help from someone who knows a little bit more 
Yeah, like yeah. It, it, I, it seems to me that when it comes to uh, early specialization and things like that, that say for example, it's, it's very obvious that a, a great rugby player could be benefited by running well or could benefit mm. from athletics training. Can it work the other way when it comes to cross pollination that somebody who's a sprinter can benefit from playing a ball sport, for example? I'm, I'm sure they can, but it's more, it's less of a, kind of a, a motor skills based thing. It's more to do with the idea of actually training your mind to think about situations in a different way. Am, am I correct in assuming that? Yeah, you are. Like the, the are distinctly different. Athletics probably feed in more to the, those team sports, but regardless of that, uh, like any child or any youth should be sampling all these different sports and having the opportunity just to be engaged. Because even if they play rugby and end up being a sprinter they'll build up skills from rugby endurance resilience um, goal setting that they could apply to other sports so it is a, a massive issue at the moment where kids are just doing one or two sports or in certain areas where that's the only sport for example it might be GAA or rugby or athletics is the only sport in that area and do we know if that's a growing trend the specialization of one sport that, that you say there's more and more people just picking one from an early age and sticking with that is it say more than it was 10 years ago or I think probably similar. You might get the, your youths, your kids, who are you know five, six, seven, eight, doing different sports. But if they're in a school, for example, and that school is very um, soccer focused or rugby focused, they probably tend towards that sport only. Um, and then it's up to that sport. If that sport is not covering all fundamental motor skill bases, and some clubs are particularly good, especially at the youth level, of spending the first half an hour of a session just doing fundamental skills and not that sport, but they might be isolated pockets. But if they're doing athletics uh, and bringing uh, and developing those skills uh, and still doing their rugby or their hockey or their Gaelic football or camogie, then they can transfer that over to it. But it does give the opportunity. The thing with, these, with any of these skills as well is not actually just running a drill. So if you run a drill and you're sprinting, that's, that's fine. But unless you have a coach there who's able to pick out your faults and correct your faults, your skill level won't improve. It doesn't happen naturally. You need, an, you need, you need some coaching on these areas. And they need to be set up where you know, you're given some feedback, you're given some direction to try to get you to what they call this mastery level of fundamental motor skill. I read that the early specialisation can actually lead to an increased chance of injury within young people. Is that true? Yeah, injury, dropout, um, and less sporting um, success as well. Why is that? What's the, the idea behind the injury section? Is that because of just more repetition doing the exact same things and not training your body in a different way, or, or do we know? Well, my anecdotally, I suppose I've worked with athletes in a few different sports, and when they get to take running as a really good example, if you've been hurling, two of the things that are really, really developed are catching and striking they're unbelievably good but they haven't been taught from an early age or they haven't been taught by someone who's an expert in the area about how to run so they get running technique that's with bad habits and poor technique and and actually that exposes them to a higher risk of injury okay so that would be kind of one example of it so if you don't have the skill for uh, at an adequate level then you are probably more likely to get injured right so it's just a lack of education really in, in their, their movement on the pitch yeah it's the same with landing. You know, if you land incorrectly, you're more at risk of an ACL injury. And fundamental skills and athletics would teach you how to land in the right position. So you're offloading the knee joint, essentially, so you're not putting yourself at risk of certain type of knee injuries. Um, and if you don't have good landing mechanics, then you are. If you're landing from a height to catching a ball and can't land correctly, that poses an issue as well. Do you think that there is any benefits for early spe specialization? Is there a sport that would benefit quite, quite well from early specialization? Or is it really across the board you shouldn't be specializing early? Well, you have your swimming, for example, which is very much early and, and competing early. So um, uh, that's possibly one, w one sport, but, but, but potentially that poses issues as well for swimmers because they're not weight-bearing um, and that uh, poses uh, issues with regard to bone health. So, you know, 
it, it, there's all there's, there is some positive obviously but there also are some negatives and it's what my advice would be just sample different sports and then when they're teenagers and so on focus in on them the, 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 another problem today is if you are in your teenage years and you're still sampling loads of sports then you have potentially burnout so it's managing both of those scenarios is the thing as well Do we know that within Athletics Ireland at the moment with the very encouraging sprinting crop we have particularly underage as we saw in 2018 are they they, um, differentiating between that and other sports as well at the moment or is it very much a focus on just sprinting at the moment? I think most, I come across athletes in lots of different sports I suppose the opportunities have been greater in the last 10-15 years to try different things so typically I would have anybody that I'd meet that's sort of 80, 19, 20 they would have been in other sports um, I think also one of the things about early specialization is um, almost mental fatigue to it and, and mm. sport fatigue to it. So I think it's important that actually you do all of these things and then you start to specialize more. And I think that would be those that I've met and um, talked to that have, are likely to be successful as adults or ones who've done more sports as a younger age because they're not, they haven't had 20 years of just the one sport and it's probably something that's still exciting and fresh to them. Um, and I think there's two sides to this. One about the early specialization you talk about, it's one of the, the other factor, apart from performance that we need to kind of be very conscious about is actually as a country and our whole involvement in physical activity and people being participants in sport. And that's why getting those skills early on or even, you know, you talked about parkrun and the equivalent in, in, we talked about it this morning with Athletics Ireland and, and Irish Life sponsoring the Daily Mile. You know, getting kids active and more active more often means actually they are, they demystify being physically active. And the more people that are physically active, that pool increases the amount of people that might actually come through at performance level as well. So, um, I think that's critical for us is actually to say, you know, do try all of these things, do get a range of skills. We would like to think that athletics will be a core one to that. Um, and it will benefit everything, not just who we see come out at the top in lots of different sports, but I think actually we'll start to see more people be more active for longer, which is, a, you know, it's important to see people on the podium at the Olympics or winning, qualifying for World Cups and so on. But it also is incredibly important that, that for the health of our nation in the long term. We'll come back to that whole issue of um, sprinting across Irish sports. We were talking a little bit about this in the newspapers a little bit earlier on. Ronaldo rumbled for 19 million Irish tax deception. So we've dragged Vincent Wall in from outside. Vincent, how are you? Good morning to you. <laughs> dragged her screaming. and yeah. yeah. Well, so we were like, hmm, I was kind of trying to pretend that I knew a little bit about this. But uh, what, what is the story here? What is the deception and um, what has Ronaldo been doing? Yeah, this effectively goes back to the period 2011-2014. So it's a historic case, uh, Ger, uh, as is the case with many of the other uh, players who played in Spain that the tax authorities are investigating. Um, so, and it's all to do with image rights, uh, the, the revenues that the likes of Ronaldo uh, generated on their image rights and whether uh, and to what degree they had a liability to pay tax on those image rights in Spain for the time they were playing there. Uh, I have sort of sympathy for Ronaldo on this one because uh, it's not that he didn't declare those image rights. He did make a declaration in his 24 tax declaration, but he said that the vast majority of the income he, reigned, he earned from his image rights was earned outside Spain, so that therefore, in his view and in the view of his advisors, there, was no, uh, there wasn't the uh, liability that the tax authorities in Spain now say that he had for that period. They say that he owes 15 million euro for that period 2011-2014 alone. Uh, so that's where uh, the fine and the suspended jail sentence has come from. They were actually imposed last June when Spain were playing Portugal in, in, in the World Cup, uh, but it, it, it 
came to its finality yesterday in, in court. Now, where does the Irish connection come in? Basically, uh, Ronaldo's agent, uh, Jorge Mendes, as, as we know, uh, he effectively working with a lawyer based here in Dublin, used the very generous and lax Irish corporate tax system effectively to set up a number of uh, companies here that, uh, that then had mirror companies in tax havens, the likes of the British Virgin Islands. And Irish tax law allowed that, not just for the likes of these sporting images rights, but also for giant multinationals based here. Um, that effectively meant that uh, no tax would have been paid in the British Virgin Islands through an Irish company based here uh, on those image rights. And that's what's come home to roost. Interestingly, the Irish government has, has closed off a lot of those loopholes now, hope, loopholes now under pressure from tax authorities, both in the European Commission and, and wider afield. Uh, so that won't happen again. That's what was known as the Double Irish. Yeah, that was known as the Double Irish, where effectively you could set up a registered company in Ireland, uh, whether for image rights or, or, or Whatever. internet yeah. uh, tech services, uh, but effectively have a mirror operation in a jurisdiction where no taxes were paid at all. Okay, so uh, that was the benefit of that, because initially people were wondering, why is George Mendes coming to Ireland? And, and I think the, the casual assumption would have been, well, our corporation tax rate is much better than everywhere else's, but actually it's even better when you can... Yeah, with that double Irish mechanism, it was even better. Effectively, it, 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 it meant that almost no corporation tax at all was paid, other than what Ronaldo, through his tax advisors, did declare that they were eligible to pay for the rights that they're generated in Spain. But that was far lower than the Spanish authorities uh, deemed to be the case and which Ronaldo has effectively accepted now. Okay, He's still based here though, right? His name Mendes is in the corporation tax is still on its own, yeah, a very attractive thing. Those, those couple of companies are still here on. Um, there's a whole lot of cross-shareholdings cross and cross-directorships between uh, Gestapute, uh, Mendes' uh, agency company, and those companies, uh, Polaris and uh, Multisports Image and management, I think, is the other one based here. I think his nephew is a director of, of uh, Multisports Image and, and Management and of Polaris. Uh, so he is still linked to those. And, uh, you know, you could argue that uh, image rights generated outside of Spain um, could could still be channeled through here and pay 12.5% corporation tax here as distinct from no tax through the double Irish mechanism. But I suspect other jurisdictions we'll be looking at the Spanish ruling now and saying, well, image rights earned while a star footballer was playing in our country, like the yeah. German League or the Italian League, uh, they'll be looking at those kind of revenue sources as well, I think. Yeah, because, I mean, there was a, an assumption when Messi was the first one done that this was somehow a conspiracy by the Real Madrid authorities, to, but it turned out they were going after everybody. They were going after everybody, and the difference with Messi, the, the, the main difference between Messi and the Ronaldo case is that Messi and his father and their advisors didn't declare any earnings at all in Spain. Okay. They basically just didn't clear anything. So uh, now, in, in the Ronaldo case, the earnings are far bigger, which is why his fine is bigger uh, and why his suspended sentence is bigger. But Messi and his father didn't declare any liability to the Spanish tax authorities at all for their image rights. Do people ever go to prison for this kind of stuff? I, th I think under Spanish law, effectively, if it's your first case and you agree to a significant fine, you automatically get a suspended sentence. Okay, all right. It's a good stuff. Thanks for explaining that. Thank you. Uh, we actually now know what we're talking about and we can uh, bang on about it. <laughs> Thanks a million. So, uh, off the back of the price hike around GAA tickets, Dunica Boyle and Michael Moynihan joined Joe on last night's Off the Ball to discuss the amateur ethos of the GAA and the state that it's in at the moment. Have a look. And so many of the issues we're talking about boil down to a simple point. Um, the GAA holds itself to a higher standard and everybody else holds the GAA to a higher standard as well. It's supposed to be about community, it has an amateur ethos, it's increasingly operating in a commercial way and dealing with absolutely massive uh, sums of money and the inter-county scene is completely out of control as well 
Um, that is where we are. That, that underpins, Michael, pretty much every problem, every, every um, scandal, GAA scandal we talk about every few months. Yeah, I mean, you made it there in that, you know, the GA can't kind of take the, the virtue of dropping prices for an hour and fine replay by €10 euro and then complain when it gets a rap in the knuckles for putting them up. I mean, Dick referred to the market there, but that's only what the GA president did, you know, himself. It's, it's, it's tricky because, you know, as we said earlier, people, so a lot of people within the GA are uncomfortable with the idea that what they have is a product, that they're consumers of that product. And that money is needed to generate the training, the hurlies, the footballs, the infrastructure, and so on. But that's a fact of life that people have to, you know, accommodate in some way, shape, or form. I think a lot of the time, people are happy to ignore that. But then when the reality breaks through, you know, it's a touch of, you know, give me chastity, but just not yet. You know, I don't, I don't want to deal with the, <laughs> the dirty details of commercial reality because I'm happy enough with what I'm doing. Yeah, there is a, a, a bit of a disconnect there and a very uncomfortable par- uncomfortable partnership between the volunteer ethos of the GA that sustains it and has built it to what it is, plus the arm of it in based in Crow Park that has to make money yeah. to and and never the twain shall meet. Sometimes yeah. you know, yeah. um, and and th- th- look, they, they they have to clash just by their very nature. They have to clash. Yeah, I wonder, like, is there no way of working it out though that like there's an understanding that the point of the commercialism is to pay for coaching and to pay for the facilities and to do all the things that the GAA does very well. Um, these are the things that we're charging for. And this stuff over here we're not charging for. That's the, that's the bit. I know the give me chastity but not yet line is a great line. Um, I guess if, if everything's more clearly defined, we agree that these are the things that we're selling. We agree that these are the things we're not selling. We agree that these are the things that we will try and subsidise the price on. People feel like the intercounty, going to intercounty games should be subsidised somewhat when it isn't, when actually it's a cash cow. Is that where the disconnect comes from? That, just the lack of definition that's out there. It, what's it, for sale and what's not for sale? Is that everything's for sale if you don't nail it down? It might be if you actually show the actual filtering down of where the cash ends up and what exactly the projects are that are being funded by the cash because there is no question that uh, the GEA does need revenue to uh, execute the sort of things that the GEA so badly needs and it runs on. Like it does have other revenue streams, obviously. Do we know where all that money is then going into? It seems that this is actually one of the rare cases where the GEA has explicitly come out and said, well, this is going to go back to the clubs. Like when when the Sky Deal came out, I'm not sure. If, like, refresh my memory here. Was there a specific mention of where the money from Sky would go to? And I know Sky just like gets mentioned all the time because it's such a, a famous example of a revenue story within the GEA. But it does seem on this occasion that John Horne, in his quotes yesterday morning in the newspapers, was saying that yeah, this money will go back to the clubs. Well, he said he'd already increased the amount that was going to the clubs by 500 grand. He will he will increase by another 500 grand. But like, that's not all of the money from no. this. That's the money. So if it's... Um, what I'm saying is that that's one mention of it, that we need a full uh, suite of what, uh, what actually is happening here, why exactly uh, the, the ticket prices are going up. And maybe you will get a more understanding public. Yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. That, uh, that is the question. Like, How much information do people need and how much information do people want? How much information is everybody entitled to? If you're, if you're the member of a GAA club, are you entitled to know exactly chapter and verse, pound, shilling and pence what is spent on every single aspect of it, like how much is spent on the administration and what percentage of that is. And 
what the revenues are because some of that's going to be commercially sensitive and that's that's the bit where it all yeah. falls into well we can actually but, keep secrets but like my, my whole idea in this is that the GEA is a commercially successful organisation and is interesting to commercial partners because it is different it is a different organisation to pretty much any other sporting body in the world well, you can't say you're different and also go along the, the means of you know joining up with professional organisations in terms of their way of thinking in terms of matching their prices in terms of judging our sport or the, the, the people of getting football and hurling sport by the, the metrics of the Pro 14. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that was one of the reasons why the um, comments from Dick Clerken were difficult for a lot of people to agree with because you sell yourself on the fact that this is an amateur organisation and um, we're not comparing ourselves to the professionals because if we start comparing ourselves to the professionals, the players are getting paid. Why aren't the players getting paid if we're paying in? Wouldn't it be much better? Wouldn't the product be much better if there was a professional coach deciding how to break down the blanket fence. And, and suddenly it's like, well, okay, that, that's completely lost the point of the discussion, which is actually, we have this great thing, and if we're going to monetize it and put a value on it and, and treat it as a product, then the players are going to want a much bigger cut. If you're calling the players the product, they're going to want a much bigger cut. Precisely. So you, you engage with that, but that way lies professionalism. And if that's the road, then that's the road, but you've got to be upfront about it. Yeah, exactly. You can't have it both ways. And I, I think when Dick was saying yesterday uh, about the, I, I think the, the kind of what about the grotesque nature of some of the professional sports that we have that they are completely ripping off uh, people, and that's fine if, if you want to go down that that road. Like that can also be that can also become a product of what the GEA can be as well yeah. if we continue doing this. So I think there's a bit of hypocrisy in that argument. Yeah, I just I, sometimes I wonder if like if there was a breakaway professional Gaelic football league, would it be a disaster? And that, that's just your professional league and anybody who wants to go and support that and be a part of that, fair enough. But everything else over here is just the amateur stuff where, you know, which is the thing that it's all You mean been. the American County Championship in the summer? Well, I mean... <laughs> Sorry, no, of course, that's an amateur league. Sorry, the American County Championship could not be successful because the GPA is stealing all the money from the Americans. <laughs> we all know that. And some county so boards. Some county boards. Some county boards. But primarily the GPA because they're the evil empire who ruined this whole thing. Like, DUP, you mean? Yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> That that um, it's so mad that like it's impossible to have a straightforward conversation about this kind of stuff. Uh, it it has got quite shouty, hasn't it, on both ends of on both sides of the argument here, hasn't it? It's it's got quite um, uh, and it's not not this specific argument, but on different things like the GPA is one, the Sky Deal is one. This is another. If only, if only the person in charge of the GAA was a financial expert who could explain exactly where all the money goes and why it's needed at this time. Are we still giving the he's only in the job a wet week excuse? No. Because no. he hasn't been in the job a wet week. No. And, and I, look, I understand that there's a, a desire probably to put the presidents forward given that that's the elected position. But the president of the GAA is about as powerful as the president of Ireland when it comes to the policy making. Like, you know, it's, it certainly seems that way. They can have ideas and they can bring stuff through and then a debate happens about it and a committee gets formed and the committee gets shouted down by the managers and the players and everything stops. But actually, in the background, the people designing everything are the ones who are the... And that's how it should be. But let's know exactly what they think, and let's, let's hear a bit more from Tom Ryan about this. Yeah, definitely. Djokovic just won the first set this morning uh, against uh, Nishikori. 6-1 was the score, and um, Nishikori's already been getting treatment. So uh, apparently Djokovic has a back injury, but he's doing all right. So we're still on track for a Djokovic-Nadal final, are we? Or would that be a semi? Or is Sissipus playing Nadal in the semi? Anyway, 
your uh, your Sisyphus uh, pronunciation is slowly sounding like Sisyphus. Does uh, this young Greek player also push a rock up the hill? Um, Sisyphus. It could be uh, could, could, yeah, could could that be the the man who could be the the cat amongst the pigeons here in this. I'm not sure what the draw is to be honest with you. Yeah, he's well, he's going down. That's the semi. Is this the semi? Is, is no, this is only quarter. Yeah, so I thought that. Good work on figuring out the the seedings for the Australian. Sisyphus. Yeah. Not Sisyphus. Yeah. Why not? It's just, that's how he wants it to be. Well, I think Fair so, enough. yeah. I think it's we'll kind of how it's spelled. I didn't realize that was uh, the number two seed. So, yeah, they're playing in the other semi. So, this is obviously um, to try and get into a semi final. And he will play. Uh, Working this out on the fly is always a good idea, isn't it? <laughs> the, the French dude. He is French? Is that The flag hasn't fully um, formed on me. So. You have like a HTML computer or something? Puy. Lucas Puy. Good stuff. So uh, I'm, looking, I'm looking forward to that particular encounter when it eventually lands on our plate. Uh, we did want to talk about uh, the granny rule this morning, just because we want to move away from tennis <laughs> ASAP. Uh, and Dan MacDonald is writing this morning that the demands for lo- loyalty from Rice sit uneasily with her desperate chase for granny rule players. And maybe this whole moral dilemma of whether or not the pursuit of players like Nathan Redmond could be eradicated if you just got rid of the granny rule. You play for an underage team at your nationality. That's it. Job done. No Declan Rice debate. No Nathan Redmond debate. Are there other countries who are, would be more affected by this than us if we change this rule? If we agitated to change this rule, because obviously we don't have the power to do it. Would we be? You're saying would we be the most affected? Are we one of the like top I would, five? Top I would 10? say we definitely are. Are there like some of those former French colonies who have kids who um, grow up in France but are raised in a different tradition? who want to play and then suddenly would stop being played and France would just cap them at underage level and that would be the end of of players who actually could, you know, be an important link. I don't know, there's definitely... You'd want to talk to those countries and see, like, Cote d'Ivoire, Cameroon, whatever those French-speaking countries are who have large populations in the urban centres of France who... um, Like Nigeria. I mean, obviously Nigeria is a massive population, but there are a bunch of kids who... Uh, would have very strong ties to Nigeria who grow up in London or um, we did an interview with O.C. Humanyora he ends up growing up in Alabama and like has very strong ties to Nigeria so you do wonder like the granny rule for some countries is more important than others yeah like um, when Dan talks about the obsession with the granny rule it's like uh, the way that we've gone out of our way to uh, almost exploit this thing in some cases. Like, he talks about Scott Hogan and how he was a temporary obsession because of exceptional exploits at Brentford, but subsequent events would suggest that there was actually a better all-round player coming through in the shape of Sean Maguire. Now, I think that's probably more on a simpler level that, oh, that person is playing in the Championship, oh, this guy uh, is playing in the League of Ireland. Now, of course, Sean Maguire ended up becoming uh, available to an English club and he was good enough to play in England. But uh, at that time... I guess the the idea of that this shiny thing over there is is probably what is actually happening here, and I think that leads to kind of a greater obsession on our part with the granny rule. That is it really necessary? And so I think there's a, a very valid point in all of that. He talks about it, Adam Rooney as well, uh, amongst other people, Killian Sheridan, uh, another person who perhaps could have been included or made more of an effort from the Irish management perspective to get them involved, uh, then going hunting for these players uh, abroad. Um, like the, he does point out that we're going to see a home base under 21 squad being announced by, by Stephen Kenny and his approach to all of this would be very interesting because you would suspect that if it was at a base level Scott Hogan versus Sean Maguire at the time in the Ireland squad Stephen Kenny might have picked Sean Maguire instead yeah I, like 
I, I don't think it's an either or. I know in this instance it appears to be like this guy blocked the progress of this other guy, but put this in some historical context, Ireland were all over the granny rule in the mid-80s when we were a country completely ruined by emigration, where people hadn't had the choice to emigrate, they were forced to emigrate because there were no jobs, there was no money, the country was being completely mismanaged by uh, cowboy government after cowboy government. Elections were happening every 18 months and interest rates were at 20%. So all of a sudden, we were getting some benefit from the emigration where uh, you know, Andy Townsend suddenly is a player who at the time was not as good as he ends up becoming. Um, so I don't know if Mark Lawrence was quite under the granny rule, but there's that unbelievably strong Preston link. Uh, there's, there's a bunch of players who get, come into the team, Ray Houghton, We've got really strong links with Glasgow. Like It seemed like it was the right thing to do for the country was to go and say, yeah, we've been absolutely butchered by emigration for, well, 800 years, uh, certainly for 100 years. Let's try and get some benefit from this. And we saw ourselves as a more global country than just the 26 counties as it was. So uh, in that context, I think... Fair enough. Let's let's go and use the granny rule. These people have Irish heritage. Like it's only international football. It's not the end of the world. This isn't a war. Um, and if we can improve our outcome and it's a mutually beneficial thing, and everybody understands mutually beneficial from the start, we've got a track record of success with this for both sides, for the players and for the for the country. If there are some Scott Hogan's along the way, if there's a, a Mickey Evans along the way, but if Declan Rice decides to play for Ireland and becomes a cult hero who plays 15 years and captains us to two tournaments. The granny rule is great. Yeah, like there is levels to this thing as well. There's a Declan Rice situation, which I think everybody would be delighted to see happen. And then there is, say, the Nathan Redmond situation, which I think would raise a lot more eyebrows. Now, personally, they've, uh, we qualify for the next Euros and Nathan Redmond scores a goal to qualify us or plays uh, impressively in a couple of results that are crucial in our qualification. And I'm not complaining. Uh, and I think most people would probably fall in line because, as you say, ultimately, it is international football. It, it isn't life or death. You're not exactly nailing your colours to the mast or some sort of uh, nationalistic representation of who you are as a person or how, your own sort of, how you can be personally offended by this sort of thing. I'm not sure too many people are. They can I'd, I'd say increasingly people are. And I'd say jingoism is massively coming into this whole nation of, uh, you know, we are one Irish nation. The, and I think that that's happening with, like, that's generally happening in the world at the moment. So we, I, I certainly would be very, be very uncomfortable about uh, beating a drum for, you know, Irish-born, Irish-bred, Irish-speaking. Not for me, thanks. Are you saying those people uh, who support Ira Exit are mostly against the Nathan Redmond situation? I'm, I'm saying that they're like, uh, they would be appalled by it. And so, you know. Yeah. I think most reasonable people would uh, frown upon Nathan Redmond being selected for Ireland and then smile upon Nathan Redmond being selected when we qualify for the Euros. Uh, Digger says, good morning to you. How are you doing? Huge emphasis every Saturday in training in Kerry under 14 development squads in running technique. Kids who have a background in athletics stand out like a sore thumb for good reasons on a pitch. Hashtag OTBAM. Um, that's interesting. And that, like, again, it's great that that's happening, right? Because, you know, lives and playing careers can be transformed by learning how to sprint. This is the, the other thing. It's like, oh, this talent is given to you. It's like innate. You can't, you can't make people faster. But actually, you can make people way faster. Yeah, uh, and I think... You can the, jump higher, you can make them more elastic, you can do loads of things. The thing is, obviously, that's uh, under-14 development squads. They're the very best in the county being taught how to run properly. And uh, the, the 
the goal in that is to make sure that Kerry players are faster by the time they get to under 16 and that they continue to win minor All-Irelands. And that's great. I'm not saying that that's a negative thing at all. But hopefully that's the start of something else that perhaps the very central hub of the sporting community down there, which is the GEA, actually looks around and says, actually, we could uh, help everybody. Yeah, And uh, if they end up spreading their wings and picking athletics over uh, football or whatever it may be, then that's fine as well. The, the, a bit more of a security in your own brand, perhaps. And I'm not saying that's not the case at all. I'm just saying I hope that's kind of the start of something. Yeah. So Cody says, I wonder what Ringrose's room mechanics are like. Um, I mean, I don't know to the naked eye, they look pretty good. He's got like a, he's got a glide. Mm, he does. Uh, it, it is like you do wonder if the the running technique is also kind of is judgeable when they're trying to do that sidestep thing, trying to find a gap in the line. Can you actually improve your technique that way to sort of have yourself in a position where you can accelerate off the line a little bit quicker if that line break emerges? You'd imagine it does. Uh, so I think there's kind of a, a bit of a lateral analysis to be done there. You, you could break it all down. For me, though, it was Jordan Larmer has always been the one that kind of looks like that guy's a sprinter. Chris uh, Budgie Burgess says, Leroy Sané has a running background due to his father and mother being a footballer and a gymnast. 100% you can see it when Sané runs. Looks like a pure athlete and glides past others with and without the ball. And then he's got the... Uh, Strong arm emoji, is that what it is? Um, so here's a great story that we've been looking up. The incredible story of Manchester City star Leroy Sané's parents. His dad was um, born in Senegal, moved to France at the age, uh, at four, the age of four, the uh, children of diplomats, and then gets sent to national service to the Black Forest in Germany, plays football there and gets picked up by a Bundesliga team and um, ends up being a professional footballer for years. Seems like a fairly interesting character. Nuts. Uh, a journalist who gives out about his wife at some point and the coach goes, yeah, you should have killed him as opposed to like, you know, don't be headbutting the uh, journalist, please. Not good Not good for the company's brand. He's like, nah, you should have killed that guy. So, you know, obviously he found a coach that suited him but his ma was a rhythmic gymnast who uh, wins a medal in the 84 Olympics. Is that it? Uh, was, was there an Olympics in 80? Yeah, there was. Yeah. Um, LA. Yeah. Daybreak LA. Re- remember it well. I do. Uh, first, for Germany's first uh, Olympic gymnast or something like that. Oh, she wins a bronze medal in rhythmic gymnast. So that's not a bad combination to have. Uh, the dad can run ten, ten, seven for the hundred meters. That's not bad either. So, it's like, he's got pretty good genes. And yeah. how much of that? I'm, I'm sure that's been taken and turned into a huge talent. And he couldn't have got to the level he could get to without unbelievable coaching. But those genes help. And uh, like, is it possible that you know running technique is actually a genetic thing? I'm sure you can prove it, though. That's the point. Yeah. So, you, you, so his genes would suggest that he can run super fast, right? Like, your genes would suggest that there's a, a max speed for you. We just need to get you to that max speed. That's the challenge. It's the most offensive thing anybody's ever said to me in my life. I've offensive. Got a, I've, 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 got a, I've got a max speed. I can get to whatever speed I want to using the right uh, running technique. Like, I, ju- I just wonder if like, some people are... like they, they clearly are. Maybe if we give you some Oscar Pistorius blades, you might be able to get there. But that's the only way you're getting there. Yeah, a bit of that, a uh, bit of meldonium. Um, Bernard Brogan, not the Bernard Brogan, says uh, Cody is still relatively young. <laughs> relatively young. Look at the Queen in her nineties. Trump in his mid seventies. Prince Charles seventy. Not even started his vocation. Keep going, Brian. You're much too young. Hashtag OTBAM. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's quite true, and I'm sure he takes uh, particular inspiration from all of those three figures. Trump, the Queen, Prince Charles. 
and uh, Brian Cody together at last. There's a there's a dinner party conversation. I'm sure Prince Philip was on that list until recently. Uh, Owen is back tomorrow morning from 7.45am with Anthony Moyles, Conor McKeown and Tommy Walsh. It's a GAA special ahead of the return of the leagues. I'm going to be down at our Dublin Racing Festival preview in the Sugar Club with an all-star lineup from the world of racing and beyond, including Nicky English, Davey Russell, Rachel Blackmore, Patrick Mullins, Kevin Caban, Johnny Ward and John Duggan are also going to be there with us as well. We're going to leave you with this when uh, Kevin Caban met Kevin Caban last night on Off The Ball. I saw some stuff on Twitter about a life-size cutout, and now yeah. for no obvious reason, there's a life-size cutout of Kevin Colban in action against Cameroon you, you, in the O2 World Cup. I was just saying, he's probably slightly smaller than me, isn't it? But yeah. you were saying the knees are slightly knees bent. Are bent. So bend your knees if you're running. Bring the knees down a slight yeah, little bit. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Spot on. What do you think, yeah? yeah. That's it's not the most flattering facial expression. No, it is not. It isn't. You look a bit gormless, I'd say. I, well, I am gormless, aren't I? You know, Especially Phil Jones there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ireland, Cameroon, 1st of June, 2002. Yeah. Look at you there, strapping, I would say. First thing I said, look to the boots. Always look to the boots. <clears throat> I started wearing uh, Nike boots probably, well, probably around or about 2000, 2001, maybe. Let's keep the wide shot here, JP. So we they were the ones. They were the, uh, they were the, 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 the World Cup boot from that year. So yeah. they were the ones. Hold them up there. I think people will recognise those ones. Yeah. Yeah. They're the Nike ones with the bit of grey. Yeah. And then the grey tongue. The side laces. Never was a fan of them. The side laces, that's right. Side yeah. laces, yeah. They were actually yeah. decent boots. They were were decent. they, yeah. I wasn't a fan of the tongue, though. I didn't like the tongue on them. It's a bit of a half. It's not. It's an, it's, it's an in-between. It's it not, doesn't know what it's doing. Either, yeah. be, either be a tongue and be yeah. proud or don't. Yeah, that, that, I, I, that's, that's probably a fair assessment of that, yeah. But they were decent boots. Comfortable enough. Were you yeah. a Nike man, generally? Yeah, for a majority of my career, yeah. It started off had Adidas to start with. Yeah, Culpers. Because it... When I was a YT, I couldn't afford Copa Mundials, so I used to get free boots from the PFA. So I had them for like half a season, Did you? and I was on what was I on twenty seven pound fifty. So I saved up a week. Yeah, twenty seven pound fifty a week. So I saved up for like well, quite quite a number of weeks. So like probably just after Christmas, I bought myself some Copa Mundials. Always wanted a pair of coppers, and then I bought them, and then that was it. Because we had the Asher Turf at, at, at Preston as well. So, if you like this, you'll probably also like OTB AM, Ireland's only sports breakfast show. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream or catch the show live on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook or offtheball.com every morning from 7.45am. 